This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Creatures of the Light by Sophie Wenzel Ellis. It's read by Kathy Wright for LibriVox. It runs one hour, 51 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kathy Wright. Creatures of the Light by Sophie Wenzel Ellis. In a nightclub of many lights and much high-pitched laughter, where he had come for an hour of forgetfulness and an execrable dinner, John Northwood was suddenly conscious that fate had begun shuffling the cards of his destiny for a dramatic game. First, he was aware that the singularly ugly and deformed man at the next table was gazing at him with an intense, almost excited scrutiny. But more disturbing than this was the scowl of hate on the face of another man, as handsome as this other was hideous, who sat in a far corner, hidden behind a broad column, with rude elbows on the table, gawking first at Northwood, and then at the deformed, almost hideous man. Northwood's blood chilled over the expression on the handsome, fair-haired stranger's perfectly carved face. If a figure in marble could display a fierce, unnatural passion, it would seem no more eldritch than the hate in the icy blue eyes. It was not a new experience for Northwood to be stared at. He was not merely a good-looking young fellow of twenty-five. He was scenery, magnificent and compelling. Furthermore, he had been in the public eye for years, first as a precocious child, and later as a brilliant young scientist. Yet for all his experience with hero-worshippers to put an adamantine crust on his sensibilities, he grew warm-eared under the gaze of these two strangers— this hunchback with a face like a grotesque mask in a Greek play, this other who, even handsomer than himself, chilled the blood queerly with the cold perfection of his godlike masculine beauty. Northwood sensed something familiar about the hunchback. Somewhere he had seen that huge, round, intelligent face splattered with startling features. The very breadth of the man's massive brow was not altogether unknown to him, nor could Northwood look into the mournful, near-sighted black eyes without trying to recall when and where he had last seen them. But this other of the marble-perfect nose and jaw, the blonde, thick-waved hair, was totally a stranger, whom Northwood fervently hoped he would never know too well. Trying to analyze the queer repugnance that he felt for this handsome, boldly staring fellow, Northwood decided, He's like a newly made wax figure endowed with life. Shivering over his own fantastic thought, he again glanced swiftly at the hunchback, 
who he noticed was playing with his coffee, evidently to prolong the meal. One year of calm-headed scientific teaching in a famous old eastern university had not made him callous to mysteries. Thus, with a feeling of high adventure, he finished his supper and prepared to go. From the corner of his eye, he saw the hunchback leave his seat, while the handsome man behind the column rose furtively, as though he, too, intended to follow. Northwood was out in the dusky street about thirty seconds, when the hunchback came from the foyer. Without apparently noticing Northwood, he hailed a taxi. For a moment he stood still, waiting for the taxi to pull up at a curb, standing thus with the street light limning every unnatural angle of his twisted body and every queer abnormality of his huge features he looked almost repulsive on his way to the taxi his thick shoulder jostled the younger man northwood felt something strike his foot and stooping in the crowded street picked up a black leather wallet wait he shouted as the hunchback stepped into the waiting taxi. But the man did not falter. In a moment, Northwood lost sight of him as the taxi moved away. He debated with himself whether or not he should attempt to follow, and while he stood thus in indecision, the handsome stranger approached him. "'Good evening to you,' he said curtly, his rich, musical voice, for all its deepness— held a faint hint of the tremulous, bird-like notes heard in the voice of a young child who has not used his vocal cords long enough for them to have lost their exquisite newness. "'Good evening,' echoed Northwood, somewhat uncertainly. A sudden aura of repulsion swept coldly over him, seen close, with the brilliant light of the street directly on this too-perfect face, the man was more sinister than in the café. Yet Northwood, struggling desperately for a reason to explain his violent dislike, could not discover why he shrank from this splendid creature, whose eyes and flesh had a new, fresh appearance rarely seen except in very young boys. "'I want what you picked up,' went on the stranger. "'It isn't yours,' Northwood flashed back. "'Ah!' that effluvium of hatred which seemed to weave a tangible net around him. "'Nor is it yours. Give it to me.' "'You're so insolent, aren't you?' "'If you don't give it to me, you'll be sorry.' The man did not raise his voice in anger, yet the words whipped Northwood with an almost physical violence. "'If he knew that I saw everything that happened in there, that I am talking to you at this moment, he would tremble with fear.' "'But you can't intimidate me.' "'No.' "'For a long moment the cold blue eyes held his contemptuously. "'No. I can't frighten you, you worm of the black age.' "'Before Northwood's horrified sight he vanished, "'vanished as though he had turned suddenly to air and floated away. "'The street was not crowded at that time.' and there was no pressing group of bodies to hide the splendid creature. Northwood gawked stupidly, mouth half open, eyes searching wildly everywhere. The man was gone. He had simply disappeared in this sane, electric-lighted street. 
Suddenly, close to Northwood's ear, grated a derisive laugh. "'I can't frighten you?' From nowhere came that singularly young old voice. As Northwood jerked his head around to meet blank space, a blow struck the corner of his mouth. He felt the warm blood run over his chin. "'I could take that wallet from you, worm, but you may keep it, and see me later. But remember this, the thing inside never will be yours.' The words fell from empty air. For several minutes Northwood waited at the spot, expecting another demonstration of the abnormal, but nothing else occurred. At last, trembling violently, he wiped the thick moisture from his forehead and dabbed at the blood, which he still felt on his chin. But when he looked at his handkerchief, he muttered, "'Well, I'll be jiggered.' The handkerchief bore not the slightest trace of blood." Under the light in his bedroom, Northwood examined the wallet. It was made of alligator skin, clasped with a gold signet that bore the initial M. The first pocket was empty. The second yielded an object that sent a warm flush to his face. It was the photograph of a gloriously beautiful girl, so seductively lovely that the picture seemed almost to be alive. The short, curved upper lip, the full, delicately voluptuous lower, parted slightly in a smile that seemed to linger in every exquisite line of her face. She looked as though she had just spoken passionately, and the spirit of her words had inspired her sweet flesh and eyes. Northwood turned his head abruptly and groaned, "'Good heavens!' He had no right to palpitate over the picture of an unknown beauty. Only a month ago he had become engaged to a young woman whose mind was as brilliant as her face was plain. Always he had vowed that he would never marry a pretty girl, for he detested his own masculine beauty sincerely. He tried to grasp a mental picture of Mary Burns, who had never stirred in him the emotion that this smiling picture invoked, Gazing at the picture, he could not remember how his fiancée looked. Suddenly the picture fell from his fingers and dropped to the floor on its face, revealing an inscription on the back. In a bold, masculine hand he read, Your future wife. Some lucky fellow is headed for a life of bliss, was his jealous thought. He frowned at the beautiful face. What was this girl to that hideous hunchback? Why did the handsome stranger warn him? The thing inside never will be yours. Again he turned eagerly to the wallet. In the last flap he found something that gave him another surprise, a plain white card on which a name and address were written by the same hand that had penned the inscription on the picture. Emil Munson, Ph.D., 44 and a half Indian Court. Emil Munson, the electrical wizard and distinguished scientific writer, friend of the professor of science at the university where Northwood was an assistant professor. Emil Munson, whom a week ago Northwood had yearned mightily to meet. 
Now Northwood knew why the hunchback's intelligent, ugly, familiar face was familiar to him. He had seen it pictured as often as enterprising news photographers could steal a likeness from the oversensitive scientist, who would never sit for a formal portrait. Even before Northwood had graduated from the university where he now taught, he had been avidly interested in Emil Munson's fantastic articles in scientific journals. Only a week ago, Professor Michael had come to him with the current issue of New Science shouting excitedly, Did you read this, John? This article by Emil Munson? His shaking, gnarled old fingers tapped the open page. Northwood seized the magazine and looked avidly at the title of the article. Creatures of the Light. No, I haven't read it, he admitted. My magazine hasn't come yet. Run through it now, briefly, will you? And note with special care the passages I have marked. In fact, you needn't bother with anything else just now. Read this. And this. And this. He pointed out penciled paragraphs. Northwood read, Man always has been, always will be, a creature of the light. He is forever reaching for some future point of perfected evolution, which, even when his most remote ancestor was a fish creature composed of a few cells, was the guiding power that brought him up from the first stinking sea and caused him to create gods in his own image. In this yearning for perfection, which sets man apart from all other life, which made him man even in the rudimentary stages of his development, he was man when he wallowed in the slime of the new world and yearned for the air above. He will still be man when he has evolved into that glorious creature of the future whose body is deathless and whose mind rules the universe." Professor Michael, looking over Northwood's shoulder, interrupted the reading. Man always has been man, he droned emphatically. That's not original with friend Munson, of course. Yet it is a theory that he has not received sufficient investigation. He indicated another marked paragraph. Read this thoughtfully, John. It's the crux of Munson's thought. Northwood continued. Since the human body is chemical and electrical, increased knowledge of its powers and limitations will enable us to work with nature in her sublime but infinitely slow processes of human evolution. We need not wait another fifty thousand years to be godlike creatures. Perhaps even now we may be standing at the beginning of the splendid bridge that will take us to that state of perfected evolution when we shall be creatures who have reached the light. Northwood looked questioningly at the professor. Queer, fantastic thing, isn't it? Professor Michael smoothed his thin, gray hair with his dried-out hand. Fantastic! His intellectual eyes behind the thick glasses sought the ceiling. Who can say? Haven't you ever wondered why all parents expect their children to be nearer perfection than themselves? 
And why is it a natural impulse for them to be willing to sacrifice themselves to better their offspring? He paused and moistened his pale, wrinkled lips. Instinct, Northwood! We creatures of the light know that our race shall reach that point of evolution when, as perfect creatures, we shall rule all matter and live forever. He punctuated the last words with blows on the table. Northwood laughed dryly. How many thousands of years are you looking forward, Professor? The professor made an obscure noise that sounded like a smothered sniff. You and I shall never agree on the point that mental advancement may wipe out physical limitations in the human race, perhaps in a few hundred years. It seems as though your profound admiration for Dr. Munson would win you over to this pet theory. But what sane man can believe that even perfectly developed beings, through mental control, could overcome nature's fixed laws? We don't know. We don't know, the professor slapped the magazine with an emphatic hand. Emil Munson hasn't written this article for nothing. He's paving the way for some announcement that will startle the scientific world. I know him. In the same manner, he gave out veiled hints of his various brilliant discoveries and inventions long before he offered them to the world. But Dr. Munson is an electrical wizard. He would not be delving seriously into the mysteries of evolution, would he? Why not? The professor's widened face screwed up wisely. A year ago, when he was back from one of those mysterious long excursions he takes in that weirdly different aircraft of his, about which he is so secretive, he told me that he was conducting experiments to prove his belief that the human being generates electric current. and that the electrical impulses in the brain set up radioactive waves that some day, among other miracles, will make thought communication possible. Perfect man, he says, will perform mental feats which will give him complete mental domination over the physical. Northwood finished reading and turned thoughtfully to the window. His profile in repose had the straight-nosed, full-lipped perfection of a Greek coin. Old, wizened Professor Michael, gazing at him covertly, smothered a sigh. I wish you knew, Dr. Munson, he said. He, the ugliest man in the world, delights in physical perfection. He would revel in your splendid body and brilliant mind. Northwood blushed hotly. You'll have to arrange a meeting between us. I have, Professor's thin, dry lips pursed comically. He'll drop in to see you within a few days. And now John Northwood sat holding Dr. Munson's card and the wallet, which the scientist had so mysteriously dropped at his feet. Here was high adventure, perhaps for which he had been singled out by the famous electrical wizard. While excitement mounted in his blood, Northwood again examined the photograph. The girl's strange eyes, odd in expression rather than in size or shape, seemed to hold him. The young man's breath came quicker. It's a challenge, he said softly. It won't hurt to see what it's all about. His watch showed eleven o'clock. He would return the wallet that night, 
Into his coat pocket he slipped a revolver. One sometimes needed weapons in Indian court. He took a taxi which soon turned from the well-lighted streets into a section where squalid houses crowded against each other and dirty children swarmed in the streets in their last games of the day. Indian court was little more than an alley, dark and evil-smelling. The chauffeur stopped at the entrance and said, "'If I drive in, I'll have to back out, sir. Number forty-four and a half is at the end house, facing the entrance.' "'You've been here before?' asked Northwood. "'Last week I drove the queerest bird here. "'A fella as good-looking as you, who had me follow the taxi, "'occupied by a hunchback with a face like old Nick.' The man hesitated and went on haltingly. "'It might sound goofy, mister, but there was something funny about my fare. "'He jumped out, asked me the charge, "'and in the moment I glanced at my taximeter, he disappeared. "'Yes, sir, vanished, owing me four dollars six bits. "'It was almost ghost-like, mister.' "'Northwood laughed nervously and dismissed him. He found his number and knocked at the dilapidated door. He heard a sudden movement in the lighted room beyond, and the door opened quickly. Dr. Munson faced him. "'I knew you'd come,' he said, with a slight Teutonic accent. "'Often I'm not wrong in sizing up a man. Come in.' Northwood cleared his throat awkwardly. "'You dropped your wallet at my feet, Dr. Munson.' I tried to stop you before you got away, but I guess you did not hear me. He offered the wallet, but the hunchback waved it aside. A ruse, of course, he confessed. It just was my way of testing what your Professor Michael told about you, that you are extraordinarily intelligent, virile, and imaginative. Had you sent the violet to me... I should have sought elsewhere for my man. Come in. Northwood followed him into a living room, evidently recently furnished in a somewhat hurried manner. The furniture, although rich, was not placed to best advantage. The new rug was a trifle crooked on the floor, and the lampshades clashed in color with the other furnishings. Dr. Munson's intense eyes swept over Northwood's tall, slim body. "'Ah! You're a man,' he said softly. "'You are what all men would be if we followed nature's plan, "'that only defeat shall survive. "'But modern science is permitting the unfit to live "'and to mix their defective beings with the developing race.' "'His huge fist gesticulated madly. "'Fools! Fools!' They need me, and perfect men like you. Why? Because you can help me in my plan to populate the earth with a new race of godlike people. But don't question me too closely now. Even if I should explain, you would call me insane. But watch. Gradually, I shall unfold the mystery before you so that you will believe. He reached for the wallet that Northwood still held up, opened it with a monstrous hand, 
and reached for the photograph. She shall bring you love. She's more beautiful than a poet's dream. A warm flush crept over the young man's face. I can easily understand, he said, how a man could love her, but for me she comes too late. Poof! Fiddlesticks! The scientist snapped his fingers. This girl was created for you. That other, you will forget her the moment you set eyes on the sweet flesh of this Atelier. She is an ori from paradise, a maiden of mosque and incense. He held the girl's photograph toward the young man. Keep it. She is yours, if you are strong enough to hold her. Northwood opened his card case and placed the picture inside, facing Mary's photograph. Again, the warning words of the mysterious stranger rang in his memory. The thing inside never will be yours. Where to, he said eagerly, and when do we start? To the new Garden of Eden, said the scientist, with such a beatific smile that his face was less hideous. We start immediately. I have arranged with Professor Michael for you to go. Northwood followed Dr. Munson to the street and walked with him a few blocks to a garage where the scientist's motor car waited. The apartment in Indian Court is just a little eccentricity of mine, explained Dr. Munson. I need people in my work, people whom I must select through swift, sure tests. The apartment comes in handy, as tonight. Northwood scarcely noticed where they were going, or how long they had been on the way. He was vaguely aware that he had left the city behind, and were now passing through farms bathed in moonlight. At last they entered a path that led through a bit of woodland. For half a mile the path continued, and then ended at a small enclosed field. In the middle of this rested a queer aircraft. Northwood knew it was a flying machine only by the propellers mounted on the top of the huge ball-shaped body. There were no wings, no bird-like hull, no tail. It looks almost like a little world ready to fly off into space, he commented. It is just about that, the scientist's squat, bunched-out body, settled squarely on long, thin, straddled legs, looked gnome-light in the moonlight. One cannot copy flesh with steel and wood, but one can make metal perform magic of which flesh is not capable. My sonship is not a mechanical reproduction of a bird. It is... But climb in, young friend. Northwood followed Dr. Munson into the aircraft. The moment the scientist closed the metal door behind him, Northwood was instantly aware of some concealed horror that vibrated through his nerves. For one dreadful moment, he expected some terrific agent of the shadows that escaped the electric lights to leap upon him, and this was odd, for nothing could be saner than the globular interior of the aircraft, divided into four wedge-shaped apartments. Dr. Munson also paused at the door, puzzled, hesitant. Someone has been here, 
he exclaimed. Look, Northwood, the bunk has been occupied. The one in this cabin I had set aside for you. He pointed to the disarranged bunk, where the impression of a head could still be seen on a pillow. A tramp, perhaps. No. The door was locked, and as you saw, the fence around this field was protected with barbed wire. There's something wrong. I felt it on my trip here all the way, like someone watching me in the dark. And don't laugh. I have stopped laughing at all things that seem unnatural. You don't know what is natural. Northwood shivered. Maybe someone is concealed about the ship. Impossible. Me, I thought so too. But I looked and looked, and there was nothing. All evening Northwood had burned to tell the scientist about the handsome stranger in the Mad Hatter Club, but even now he shrank from saying that a man had vanished before his eyes. Dr. Munson was working with a succession of buttons and levers. There was a slight jerk, and then the strange craft shot up, straight as a bullet from a gun, with scarcely a sound other than a continuous whistle. The vertical rising aircraft perfected, explained Dr. Munson. But what would you think if I told you that there is not an ounce of gasoline in our heavier-than-aircraft? I shouldn't be surprised. An electrical genius would seek for a less obsolete source of power. In the bright flare of the electric lights, the scientist's ugly face flushed. The man who harnesses the sun rules the world. He can make the desert places bloom, the frozen poles balmy and verdant. You, John Northwood, are one of very few to fly in a machine operated solely by electrical energy from the sun's rays. Are you telling me that this airship is operated with power from the sun? Yeah. And I cannot take the credit for its invention, he sighed. The dream was mine, but a greater brain developed it. A brain that may be greater than I suspect. His face grew suddenly graver. A little later, Northwood said, It seems that we must be making fabulous speed. Perhaps, Dr. Munson worked with the controls. Here. I've cut her down to the average speed of the ordinary airplane. Now you can see a bit of the night scenery. Northwood peeped out the thick glass porthole. Far below, he saw two tiny streaks of light, one smooth and stationary, the other wavering as though it were a reflection in the water. That can't be a lighthouse, he cried. The scientist glanced out. Eat ease. We're approaching the Florida Keys. Impossible! We've been traveling less than an hour. But, my young friend, do you realize that my sonship has a speed of over 1,000 miles an hour? How much over, I dare not tell you. Throughout the night, Northwood sat beside Dr. Munson, watching his deft fingers control the simple-looking buttons and levers. So fast was their flight now that, through the portholes, 
Sky and earth looked the same, dark gray films of emptiness. The continuous weird whistle from the hidden mechanism of the sunship was like the drone of a monster insect, monotonous and soporific during the long intervals when the scientist was too busy with his controls to engage in conversation. For some reason that he could not explain, Northwood had an aversion to going into the sleeping apartment behind the control room. Then, towards morning, when the suddenly falling temperature struck a biting chill throughout the sunship, Northwood, going into the cabin for fur coats, discovered why his mind and body shrank in horror from the cabin. After he had procured the fur coats from a closet, he paused a moment in the privacy of the cabin to look at Athalia's picture. Every nerve in his body leaped to meet the magnetism of her beautiful eyes. Never had Mary Burns stirred emotion like this in him. He hung over Mary's picture, wistfully hoping almost prayerfully that he could react to her as he did to Athalia. But her pale, over-intellectual face left him cold. Cad, he ground out between his teeth. Forgetting her so soon. The two pictures were lying side by side on a little table. Suddenly, an obscure noise in the room caught his attention. It was more vibration than noise, for small sounds could scarcely be heard above the whistle of the sunship. A slight compression of the air against his neck gave him the eerie feeling that someone was standing close behind him. He wheeled and looked over his shoulder. Half ashamed of his startled gesture, he again turned to his pictures. Then a sharp cry broke from him. Athalia's picture was gone. He searched for it everywhere in the room, in his own pockets, under the furniture. It was nowhere to be found. In sudden, overpowering horror, he seized the fur coats and returned to the control room. Dr. Munson was changing the speed. Look out the window, he called to Northwood. The young man looked and started violently. Day had come, and now that the sunship was flying at a moderate speed, the ocean beneath was plainly visible, and its entire surface was covered with broken flows of ice and small, ragged icebergs. He seized a telescope and focused it below. A typical polar scene met his eyes. Penguins strutted about on cakes of ice, a whale blowing in the icy water. A part of the Antarctic that has never been explored, said Dr. Munson. And there, just drawing on the horizon, is the great ice barrier. His characteristic smile lighted the morose black eyes. I am enough of the dramatist to wish you to be impressed with what I shall show you within less than an hour. Accordingly, I shall make a landing and let you feel polar ice under your feet. After less than a minute's search, Dr. Munson found a suitable place on the ice for a landing, and, with a few deft manipulations of the controls, brought the sunship swooping down like an eagle on its prey. For a long moment after the scientist had stepped out on the ice, Northwood paused at the door. 
His feet were chained by a strange reluctance to enter this white, dead wilderness of ice. But Dr. Munson's impatient, Ready? drew from him one last glance at the cozy interior of the sunship before he, too, went out into the frozen stillness. They left the sunship resting on the ice like a fallen silver moon, while they wandered to the edge of the barrier and looked at the gray, narrow stretch of sea between the ice pack and the high cliffs of the barrier. The sun of the commencing six months Antarctic day was a low, cold ball whose slanted rays struck the ice with blinding whiteness. There were constant falls of ice from the barrier, which thundered into the ocean amid great clouds of ice smoke that lingered like wraiths around the edge. It was a scene of loneliness and waiting death. "'What's that?' exclaimed the scientist suddenly. Out of the white silence shrilled a low whistle, a familiar whistle. Both men wheeled toward the sunship. Before their horrified eyes, the great sphere jerked and glided up and swerved into the heavens. Up it soared. Then, gaining speed, it swung into the blue distance until, in a moment, it was a tiny star that flickered out even as they watched. Both men screamed and cursed and flung up their arms despairingly. A penguin, attracted by their cries, waddled solemnly over to them and regarded them with manlike curiosity. "'Stranded in the coldest spot on earth!' groaned the scientist. "'Why did it start itself, Dr. Munson?' Northwood narrowed his eyes as he spoke. "'It didn't!' the scientist's huge face, red from cold, quivered with helpless rage. "'Human and started it!' "'What?' "'Whose hands?' "'Ach! Do I know?' His Teutonic accent grew more pronounced, as it always did when he was under emotional stress. Somebody whose brain is better than mine. Somebody who found a way to hide away from our eyes. Oh, God! Don't let me think! His great head sank between his shoulders, giving him, in his fur suit, the grotesque appearance of a friendly brown bear. Dr. Munson! said Northwood suddenly. Did you have an enemy? A man with the face and body of a pagan god? A great blonde creature with eyes as cold and cruel as the ice under your feet? Wait! The huge, round head jerked up. How do you know about Adam? You have not seen him. Won't see him until we arrive in our destination. But I have seen him. He was sitting not thirty feet from you in the Mad Hatter's Club last night. Didn't you know? He followed me to the street, spoke to me, and then... Northwood stopped. How could he let the insane words pass his lips? Then what? Speak up! Northwood laughed nervously. It sounds foolish, but I saw him vanish like that. Ah, God! All the ruddy color drained from the scientist's face. As though talking to himself, he continued, Then it is true. As he said, He has crossed the bridge. He has reached the light. And now he comes to see the world he will conquer. Came unseen when I refused my permission. 
He was silent for a long time, pondering. Then he turned passionately to Northwood. John Northwood, kill me. I have brought a new horror to, into the world. From the unborn future, I have snatched a creature who has reached the light too soon. Kill me. He bowed his great shaggy head. What do you mean, Dr. Munson? That this Adam has arrived at a point in evolution beyond this age? Yes, think of it. I vision godlike creatures with the souls of gods. But, Evan, help us. Man always will be man. Always will lust for conquest. You and I, Northwood, and all others are barbarians to Adam. He and his kind will do what men always do to barbarians, conquer and kill. Are there more like him? Northwood struggled with a smile of unbelief. I don't know. I did not know that Adam had reached a point so near the ultimate. But you have seen. Already he is able to set aside what we call natural laws. Northwood looked at the scientist closely. The man was surely mad. Mad in this desert of white death. Come, he said cheerfully. Let's build an Eskimo snow house. We can live on penguins for days, and who knows what may rescue us. For three hours the two worked at cutting ice blocks. With snow for mortar, they built a crude shelter which enabled them to rest out of the cold breath of the spiral polar winds that blew from the south. Dr. Munson was sitting at the door of their hut, moodily pulling at his strong black pipe. As though a fit had seized him, he leaped up and let his pipe fall to the ice. Luke, he shouted. The sun chip. It seemed but a moment before the tiny speck on the horizon had swept overhead, a silver comet on the grayish-blue polar sky. In another moment it had swooped down, eagle-wise, scarcely fifty feet from the ice hut. Dr. Munson and Northwood ran forward. From the metal sphere stepped the stranger of the Mad Hatter Club. His tall, straight form, erect and slim, swung toward them over the ice. Adam! shouted Dr. Munson. What does this mean? How dare you! Adam's laugh was like the happy demonstration of a boy. So, you think you are still master? You think I return because I reverenced you yet? Hate shot viciously through the freezing blue eyes. You worm of the Black Age! Northwood shuddered. He had heard those strange words addressed to himself scarcely more than twelve hours ago. Adam was still speaking. With a thought I could annihilate you where you are standing. But I have use for you. Get in. He swept his hand to the sunship. Both men hesitated. Then Northwood strode forward until he was within three feet of Adam. They stood thus, eyeing each other, two splendid beings, one blonde as a Viking, the other dark and vital. Just what is your game? demanded Northwood. 
the icy eyes shot forth a gleam like lightning. I needn't tell you, of course, but I may as well let you suffer over the knowledge. He curled his lips with superb scorn. I have one human weakness. I want Athalia. The icy eyes warmed for a fleeting second. She is anticipating her meeting with you. Bah! The taste of these women of the Black Age. I could kill you, of course. But that would only inflame her. And so I take you to her, thrust you down her throat. When she sees you, she will fly to me. He spread his magnificent chest. Adam! Dr. Munson's face was dark with anger. What of Eve? Who are you to question my actions? What a fool you were to let me, whom you forced into life thousands of years too soon, grow more powerful than you. Before I am through with all of you petty creatures of the Black Age, you will call me more terrible than your Jehovah, for see what you have called forth from unborn time. He vanished. Before the startled men could recover from the shock of it, the vibrant, too-new voice went on. I am sorry for you, Munson, because, like you, I need specimens for my experiments. What a splendid specimen you will be! His laugh was ugly with significance. Get in, worms! Unseen hands cuffed and pushed them into the sunship. Inside, Dr. Munson stumbled to the control room, white and drawn of face, his great brain seemingly paralyzed by the catastrophe. "'You needn't attempt tricks,' went on the voice. "'I am watching you both. You cannot even hide your thoughts from me.' And thus began the strange continuation of the journey. Not once in that wild half-hour's rush over the polar ice clouds did they see Adam. They saw and heard only the weird signs of his presence, a puffing cigar hanging in mid-air, a glass of water swinging to unseen lips, a ghostly voice hurling threats and insults at them. Once the scientist whispered, Don't cross him. It is useless. John Northwood, you'll have to fight a demagogue for your woman. Because of the terrific speed of the sunship, Northwood could distinguish nothing of the topographical details below. At the end of half an hour, the scientist slowed enough to point out a tall range of snow-covered mountains, over which hovered a play of colored lights like the Aurora Australis. Behind those mountains, he said, is our destination. Almost in a moment, the sunship had soared over the peaks. Dr. Munson kept the speed low enough for Northwood to see the splendid view below. In the giant cup formed by the encircling mountain range was a green valley of tropical luxuriance. Stretches of dense forests swept half up the mountains and filled the valley cup with tangled verdure. In the center, surrounded by a broad field and a narrow ring of woods, towered a group of buildings. From the largest, which was circular, came the aurora-like radiance that formed an umbrella of light over the entire valley. 
Do I guess right, said Northwood, that the light is responsible for this oasis in the ice? Yeah, said Dr. Munson. In your American slang, it is canned sunshine, containing an overabundance of certain rays, especially the life ray, which I have isolated, he smiled proudly. You needn't look startled, my friend. Some of the most common things store sunlight. On very dark nights, if you have sharp eyes, you can see the radiance given off by certain flowers, which many naturalists say is trapped sunshine. The vermilion nasturtiums and the marigold opened for me the way to hold sunshine against the long polar night, for they taught me how to apply the Einstein theory of bent light. Stated simply, during the polar night, when the sun is hidden over the rim of the world, we steal some of his rays. During the polar day, we concentrate the light. But could stored sunshine alone give enough warmth for the luxuriant growth of those jungles? An overabundance of the life ray is responsible for the miraculous growth of all life in New Eden. The life ray is nature's most powerful force. Yet nature is often niggardly and paradoxical in her use of her powers. In New Eden, we have forced the powers of creation to take ascendancy over the powers of destruction. At Northwood's sudden start, the scientist laughed and continued, Is it not a pity that nature, left alone, requires twenty years to make a man who begins to die in another ten years? Such waste is not tolerated in New Eden, where supermen are younger than babies, and... Come, worms, let's stand. It was Adam's voice. Suddenly he materialized a blond god whose eyes and flesh were too new. They were in a world of golden skylight, warmth, and tropical vegetation. The field on which they had landed was covered with a velvety green growth of very soft, fine-bladed grass, sprinkled with tiny, star-shaped blue flowers. A balmy, sweet-scented wind, downy as the breeze of a dream, blew gently along the grass and tingled against Northwood's skin refreshingly. Almost instantly he had the sensation of perfect well-being, and this feeling of physical perfection was part of the ecstasy that seemed to pervade the entire valley. Grass and breeze and golden skylight were saturated with a strange ether of joyousness. At one end of the field was a dense jungle, cut through by a road that led to the towering buildings, from which, while above in the sunship, they had seen the golden light issue. From the jungle road came a man and a woman, large, handsome people, whose flesh and eyes had the sinister newness of Adam's. Even before they came close enough to speak, Northwood was aware that while they seemed of Adam's breed, they were yet unlike him. 
the difference was psychical rather than physical. They lacked the aura of hate and horror that surrounded Adam. The woman drew Adam's head down and kissed him affectionately on both cheeks. Adam, from his towering height, patted her shoulder impatiently and said, "'Run on back to the laboratory, Grandmother. We're following soon. You have some new human embryos, I believe you told me this morning.' Four fine specimens, two of them being your sister's twins.' "'Splendid! I was sure that creation had stopped with my generation. I must see them.' He turned to the scientist and Northwood. "'You needn't try to leave this spot.' Of course I shall know instantly, and deal with you in my own way. Wait here. He strode over the emerald grass on the heels of the woman. Northwood asked, Why does he call that girl grandmother? Because she is his ancestress, he stirred uneasily. She is of the first generation brought forth in the laboratory and is no different from you or I, except that, at the age of five years, she is the ancestress of twenty generations. My God! muttered Northwood. Don't start being horrified, my friend. Forget about so-called natural laws while you are in New Eden. Remember, here... We have isolated the life-ray. But look, here comes your Athelia. Northwood gazed covertly at the beautiful girl approaching them with a rarely graceful walk. She was tall, slender, round-bosomed, narrow-hipped, and she held her lovely body in the erect poise of splendid health. Northwood had a confused realization of uncovered bronzy hair, drawn to the back of a white neck in a bunch of short curls, of immense soft black eyes, lips the color of blood, and delicate, plump flesh on which the golden skylight lingered graciously. He was instantly glad to see that while she possessed the freshness of young girlhood, her skin and eyes did not have that horrible newness of Adam's. When she was still twenty feet distant, Northwood met her eyes, and she smiled shyly. The rich, red blood ran through her face, and he, too, flushed. She went to Dr. Munson and placed her hands on his thick shoulders, kissed him affectionately. "'I've been worried about you, Daddy Munson,' her rich contralto voice matched her exotic beauty. "'Since you and Adam had that quarrel the day you left,' I did not see him until this morning, when he landed the sunship alone. And you pleaded with him to return for us? Yes, her eyes drooped, and a hot flush swept over her face. Dr. Munson smiled. But I am back now, Athelia, and I've brought someone whom I hope you will be glad to know. Reaching for her hand, he placed it simply in Northwood's. This is John, Athelia. Isn't he handsomer than the pictures of him which I television to you? 
God bless both of you. He walked ahead and turned his back. A magical half-hour followed for Northwood and Athalia. The girl told him of her past life, how Dr. Munson had discovered her one year ago working in a New York sweatshop, half-dead from consumption. Without friends, she was eager to follow the scientist to New Eden, where he promised she would recover her health immediately. "'And he was right, John,' she said shyly. "'The life-ray, that marvelous energy-ray, which penetrates to the utmost depths of earth and ocean, giving to the cells of all living bodies the power to grow and remain animate, has been concentrated by Dr. Munson in his stored sunshine. The life-ray healed me almost immediately.' Northwood looked down at the glorious girl beside him, whose eyes already fluttered away from his like shy black butterflies. Suddenly he squeezed the soft hand in his and said passionately, "'Athalia, because Adam wants you, and will get you if he can, let us set aside all the artificialities of civilization. I have loved you madly ever since I saw your picture.' If you can say the same to me, it will give me courage to face what I know lies before me. Athalia, her face suddenly tender, came closer to him. John Northwood, I love you. Her red lips came temptingly close, but before he could touch them, Adam suddenly pushed his body between them and Athalia. Adam was pale, and all the iciness was gone from his blue eyes, which were deep and dark and very human. He looked down at Athalia, and she looked up at him, two handsome specimens of perfect manhood and womanhood. Fast work, Athalia. The new vibrant voice was strained. I was hoping you would be disappointed in him, especially after having been wooed by me this morning. I could take care of you, if I wished, of course. But I prefer to win you in the ancient manner. Dismiss him. He jerked his thumb over his shoulder in Northwood's direction. Athalia flushed vividly and looked at him almost compassionately. I'm not great enough for you, Adam. I dare not love you. Adam laughed, and still oblivious of Northwood and Dr. Munson, folded his arms over his breast. With the golden skylight on his burnished hair, he was a valiant, magnificent spectacle. Since the beginning of time, gods and archangels have looked upon the daughters of men and found them fair. Mate with me, Athalia, and I, fifty thousand years beyond the creature Munson has selected for you, will make you as I am the deathless overlord of life and all nature. He drew her hand to his bosom. For one dark moment, Northwood felt himself seared by jealousy, for through the plump, sweet flesh of Athalia's face, he saw the red blood leap again. How could she withhold herself from this splendid superman? But her answer, given with faltering voice, was the old, simple one. I have promised him, Adam. I love him. Tears trembled on her thick lashes. So, 
I cannot get you in the ancient manner. Now I'll use my own. He seized her in his arms, crushed her against him, and laughing over her head at Northwood, bent his glistening head and kissed her on the mouth. There was a blinding flash of blue electric sparks and nothing else. Both Adam and Athalia had vanished. Adam's voice came in a long mocking challenge. I shall be what no other gods before me have been. A good sport. I'll leave you both to your own devices. Until I want you again. White-lipped and trembling, Northwood groaned. What has he done now? Dr. Munson's great head drooped. I don't know. Our bodies are electric and chemical machines. And a superior intelligence has discovered new laws of which you and I are ignorant. But Athalia, she is safe. He loves her. Loves her? Northwood shivered. I cannot believe that those freezing eyes could ever look with love on a woman. Adam is a man. At heart he is as woman as the first creature that wallowed on the new earth's slime. His voice dropped as though he were musing aloud. It might be well to let him have Athalia. She will help to keep vigor in the new race, which would stop reproducing in another few generations without injection of black age blood. Do you want to bring more creatures like Adam into the world? Northwood flung at him. You have tampered with life enough, Dr. Munson. But although Adam has my sympathy, I'm not willing to turn Athalia over to him. Well said. Now come to the laboratory for chemical nourishment and rest under the life ray. They went to the great circular building from whose highest tower issued the golden radiance that shamed the light of the sun, hanging low in the northeast. John Northwood, said Dr. Munson, with that laboratory, which is center of all life in New Eden, we'll have to whip Adam. He gave us what he called a sporting chance, because he knew that he is able to send us and all mankind to a doom more terrible than hell. Even now, we might be entering some hideous trap that he has set for us. They entered by a side entrance and went immediately to what Dr. Munson called the rest ward. Here in a large room were ranged rows of cots, on many of which lay men basking in the deep orange flood of light which poured from individual lamps set above each cot. It is the life ray, said Dr. Munson reverently. The source of all growth and restoration in nature. It is the power that bursts open the seed and brings forth the shoot, that increases the shoot into a giant tree. It is the same power that enables the fertilized ovum to develop into an animal. 
it creates and recreates cells almost instantly. Accordingly, it is the perfect substitute for sleep. Stretch out, enjoy its power, and while you rest, eat some nourishing tablets. Northwood lay on a cot, and Dr. Munson turned the life ray on him. For a few minutes, a delicious drowsiness fell upon him, producing a spell of perfect peace, which the cells of his being seemed to drink in. For another delirious, fleeting space, every inch of him vibrated with a thrilling sensation of freshness. He took a deep, ecstatic breath and opened his eyes. Enough, said Dr. Munson, switching off the ray. After three minutes of rejuvenation, you are commencing again with perfect cells. All ravages from disease and wear have been corrected. Northwood leaped up joyously. His handsome eyes sparkled. His skin glowed. I feel great. Never felt so good since I was a kid. A pleased grin spread over the scientist's homely face. See what my discovery will mean to the world? In the future, we shall all go to the laboratory for recuperation and nourishment. We'll have almost twenty-four hours a day for work and play. He stretched out on the bed contentedly. Some day, when my work is nearly done, I shall permit the life ray to cure my hump. Why not now? Dr. Munson sighed. If I were perfect, I should cease to be so overwhelmingly conscious of the importance of perfection. He settled back to enjoyment of the life ray. A few minutes later, he jumped up, alert as a boy. Ach, that's fine. Now I'll show you how the life ray speeds up development and produces four generations of humans a year. With restored energy, Northwood began thinking of Athalia. As he followed Dr. Munson down a long corridor, he yearned to see her again, to be certain that she was safe. Once he imagined he felt a gentle, soft-fleshed touch against his hand, and was disappointed not to see her walking by his side. Was she with him, unseen? The thought was sweet. Before Dr. Munson opened the massive bronze door at the end of the corridor, he said, Don't be surprised or shocked over anything you see here, John Northwood. This is the baby laboratory. They entered a room which seemed no different from a hospital ward. On little white beds lay naked children of various sizes, perfect, solemn-eyed youngsters, and older children as beautiful as animated statues. Above each bed was a small life-ray projector. A white-capped nurse went from bed to bed. They are recuperating from the daily educational period, said the scientist. After a few minutes of this, they will go into the growing room, which I shall have to show you through a window. Should you and I enter, 
We might be changed in a most extraordinary manner, he laughed mischievously. But look, Northwood. He slid back a panel in the wall, and Northwood peered in through a thick pane of clear glass. The room was really an immense outdoor arena, its only carpet the fine-bladed grass, its roof the blue sky cut in the middle by an enormous disk, from which shot the aurora of trapped sunshine, which made a golden umbrella over the valley. Through openings in the bottom of the disk poured a fine rain of rays, which fell constantly upon groups of children, youths and young girls, all clad in the merest scraps of clothing. Some were dancing, others were playing games, but all seemed as supremely happy as the birds and butterflies which fluttered about the shrubs and flowers edging the arena. "'I don't expect you to believe,' said Dr. Munson, "'that the oldest young man in there is three months old. You cannot see visible changes in a body which grows as slowly as the human being.' whose normal period of development is twenty years or more. But I can give you visible proof of how fast growth takes place under the full power of the life ray, plant life which, even when left to nature, often develops from seed to flower within a few weeks or months can be seen making its miraculous changes under the life-ray. Watch those gorgeous purple flowers over which the butterflies are hovering. Northwood followed his pointing finger. Near the glass window, through which they looked, grew an enormous bank of resplendent violet-colored flowers, which literally enshrouded the entire bush with their royal glory. At first glance, it seemed as though a violent wind were snatching at flower and bush, but closer inspection proved that the agitation was part of the plant itself, and then he saw that the movements were the result of perpetual composition and growth. He fastened his eyes on one huge bud. He saw it swell, burst, spread out its passionate purple velvet, lift the broad flower face to the light for a joyous minute. A few seconds later, a butterfly lighted airily to sample its nectar and to brush the pollen from its yellow-dusted wings. Scarcely had the winged visitor flown away than the purple petals began to wither and fall away, leaving the seed pod on the stem. The visible change went on in this seed pod. It turned rapidly brown, dried out, and then sent the released seeds in a shower to the rich black earth below. Scarcely had the scenes touched the ground than they sent up tiny green shoots that grew larger each moment. Within ten minutes there was a new plant a foot high. Within half an hour the plant budded, blossomed, and cast forth its own seed. "'You understand?' asked the scientist. "'Development is going on as rapidly among the children.' Before the first year has passed, the youngest baby will have grandchildren. That is, if the baby tests out fit to pass its seed down to the new generation. I know it sounds absurd, 
Yet you saw the plant. But, Doctor, Northwood rubbed his jaw thoughtfully, nature's forces of destruction, of tearing down, are as powerful as her creative powers. You have discovered the ultimate in creation and upbuilding. But perhaps, oh, Lord, it is too awful to think. Speak, Northwood. The scientist's voice was impatient. It is, it's nothing. The pale young man attempted a smile. I, I was only imagining some of the horror that could be thrust on the world if a supermind like Adam's should discover nature's secret of death and destruction and speed it up as you have sped the life force. Och, Gott! Dr. Munson's face was white. He has his own laboratory, where he works every day. Don't talk so loud. He might be listening, and I believe he can do anything he sets out to accomplish. Close to Northwood's ear fell a faint, triumphant whisper. Yes, he can do anything. How did you guess, Worm? It was Adam's voice. Now come and see the Leyden jar mothers, said Dr. Munson. We don't wait for the child to be born to start our work. He took Northwood to a laboratory crowded with strange apparatus, where young men and women worked. Northwood knew instantly that these people, although unusually handsome and strong, were not of Adam's generation. None of them had the look of newness which marked those who had grown up under the life-ray. They are the perfect couples, whom I combed the world to find, said the scientist. From their eugenic marriages sprang the first children that passed through the laboratory. I had hoped, he hesitated and looked sideways at Northwood. I had dreamed of having the children of you and Athelia to help strengthen the new race. A wave of sudden disgust passed over Northwood. Thanks, he said tartly. When I marry Athelia, I intend to have an old-fashioned home and a black-age family. I don't relish having my children turned into experiments. But wait until you see all the wonders of the laboratory. That is why I am showing you all of this. Northwood drew his handkerchief and mopped his brow. It sickens me, doctor. The more I see, the more pity I have for Adam, and the less I blame him for his rebellion and his desire to kill and to rule. Heavens, what a terrible thing you have done, experimenting with human life. Nonsense! Can you say that all life, all matter, is not the result of scientific experiment? Can you? His black gaze made Northwood uncomfortable. Buck up, young friend, for now I am going to show you a marvelous improvement on nature's bungling ways. The Leyden Jar Mother. He raised his voice and called, Lilith! The woman whom they had met on the field came forward. May we take a peep at Lona's twins? asked the scientist. 
They are about ready to go to the growing dome, are they not? In five more minutes, said the woman, come, see. She lifted one of the black velvet curtains that lined an entire side of the laboratory, and thereby disclosed a globular jar of glass and metal, connected by wires to a dynamo. Above the jar was a life-ray projector. Lilith slid aside a metal portion of the jar, disclosing through the glass underneath the squirming, kicking body of a baby resting on a bed of soft, spongy substance, to which it was connected by the navel cord. "'The laden jar, mother,' said Dr. Munson. "'It is the dream of a scientist realized. "'The human mother's body does nothing but nourish and protect her unborn child, "'a job which science can do better. "'And so, in New Eden, we take the young embryo,' and place it in the laden jar mother, where the life-ray, electricity, and chemical food shortens the period of gestation to a few days. At that moment a bell under the laden jar began to ring. Dr. Munson uncovered the jar and lifted out the child, a beautiful, perfectly formed boy, who began to cry lustily. Here is one baby— who will never be kissed, he said. He'll be nourished chemically, and at the end of the week, will no longer be a baby. If you are patient, you can actually see the process of development taking place under the life ray, for babies develop very fast. Northwood buried his face in his hands. Lord, this is awful. No childhood? No mother to mold his mind? No parents to watch over him, to give him their tender care? Awful! Little sticks! Come see how children get their education. How they learn to use their hands and feet, so they need not pass through the awkwardness of childhood. He led Northwood to a magnificent building, whose façade of white marble was as simply beautiful as a Greek temple. The side walls, built almost entirely of glass, permitted the synthetic sunshine to sweep from end to end. They first entered a library, where youths and young girls pored over books of all kinds. Their manner of reading mystified Northwood. With a single sweep of the eye, they seemed to devour a page and then turn to the next. He stepped closer to peer over the shoulder of a beautiful girl. She was reading Euclid's Elements of Geometry, in Latin, and she turned the pages as swiftly as the other girl occupying her table, who was devouring Paradise Lost. Dr. Munson whispered to him, If you do not believe that Ruth here is getting her Euclid, which she probably never saw before today. Examine her from the book. That is, if you are good enough Latin scholar. Ruth stopped her reading to talk to him, and in a few minutes had completely dumbfounded him with her pedantic replies, which fell from lips as luscious and unformed as an infant's. Now, said Dr. Munson, Test the Rachel on her Milton. 
as far as she has read. She should not misquote a line, and her comments will probably prove her scholarly appreciation of Milton. Word for word, Rachel was able to give him Paradise Lost, from memory, except the last four pages, which she had not read. Then, taking the book from him, she swept her eyes over these pages, returned the book to him, and quoted copiously and correctly. Dr. Munson gloated triumphantly over his astonishment. "'There, my friend, could you now be satisfied with old-fashioned children who spend long, expensive years in getting an education? Of course, your children will not have the perfect brains of these. Yet, developed under the life-ray, they should have splendid mentality. These children, through selective breeding, have brains that make everlasting records instantly. A page in a book, once seen, is indelibly retained by them and understood. The same is true of a lecture, of an explanation given by a teacher, of even idle conversation. Any man or woman in this room should be able to repeat the most trivial conversation days old. But what of the arts, Dr. Munson? Surely even your supermen and women cannot instantly learn to paint a masterpiece or to guide their fingers and their brains through the intricacies of a difficult musical composition. No? His dark eyes glowed. Come see. Before they entered another wing of the building, they heard a violin being played masterfully. Dr. Munson paused at the door. So that you may understand what you shall see, let me remind you that the nerve impulses and the coordinating means in the human body are purely electrical. The world has not yet accepted my theory, but it will. Under Superman's system of education, the instantaneous records made on the brain give immediate skill to the acting parts of the body. Accordingly, musicians are made overnight. He threw open the door. Under a life-ray projector, a beautiful Juno-esque woman was playing a violin. Facing her, and with eyes fastened to hers, stood a young man, whose arms and slender fingers mimicked every motion she made. Presently she stopped playing and handed the violin to him. In her own masterly manner, he repeated the score she had played. "'That is Eve,' whispered Dr. Munson. "'I had selected her as Adam's wife, but he does not want her, the most brilliant woman of the new race.' Northwood gave the woman an appraising look. Who wants a perfect woman? I don't blame Adam for preferring Athalia. But how is she teaching her pupil? Through thought vibration, which these perfect people have developed until they can record permanently the radioactive waves of the brains of others. Eve turned 
caught Northwood's eyes in her magnetic blue gaze, and smiled as only a goddess can smile upon a mortal she has marked as her own. She came toward him without flung hands. "'So you have come!' her vibrant contralto voice, like Adam's, held the bird-like broken tremulo of a young child's. "'I have been waiting for you, John Northwood!' Her eyes, as blue and icy as Adam's, lingered long on him, until he flinched from their steely magnetism. She slipped her arm through his and drew him gently but firmly from the room, while Dr. Munson stood gaping after them. They were on a flagged terrace, arched with roses of gigantic size, which sent forth billows of sensuous fragrance. Eve led him to a white marble seat piled with silk cushions, on which she reclined her superb body, while she regarded him from narrow lids. "'I saw your picture that he televisioned to Athalia,' she said. "'What a botch Dr. Munson has made of his mating!' Her laugh rippled like falling water. "'I want you, John Northwood!' Northwood started and blushed furiously. Smile dimples broke around her red, humid lips. "'Ah, you're old-fashioned!' Her large, beautiful hand, flushed more tenderly than any woman's hand he had ever seen, went out to him appealingly. "'I can bring you amorous delights that your Athalia never could offer in her few years of youth. And I'll never grow old, John Northwood.' She came closer until he could feel the fragrant warmth of her tawny, ribbon-bound hair pulse against his face. In sudden panic he drew back. "'But I am pledged to Athalia,' tumbled from him. "'It is all a dreadful mistake, Eve. You and Adam were created for each other.' "'Hush!' The lightning that flashed from her blue eyes changed her from seductress to angry goddess." created for each other? Who wants a made-to-measure lover? The luscious lips trembled slightly, and into the vivid eyes crept a suspicion of moisture. Eternal Eve's weapons. Northwood's handsome face relaxed with pity. I want you, John Northwood, she continued shamelessly. Our love will be sublime. She leaned heavily against him, and her lips were like a blood-red flower pressed against white satin. "'Come, beloved, kiss me.' Northwood gasped and turned his head. "'Don't, Eve!' "'But a kiss for me will set you apart from all your generation, John Northwood, and you shall understand what no man of the Black Age could possibly fathom.' Her hair had partly fallen from its ribbon bondage and poured its fragrant gold against his shoulder. "'For God's sakes, don't tempt me,' he groaned. "'What do you mean?' "'That mental and physical and spiritual contact with me will temporarily give you a three-dimension creature, the power of the new sense which your race will not have for fifty thousand years.' White-lipped and trembling, he demanded, "'Explain!' Eve smiled. "'Have you not guessed that Adam has developed an additional sense? "'You've seen him vanish. "'He and I have the sixth sense of time perception. 
the new sense which enables us to penetrate what you of the Black Age call the fourth dimension. Even you, whose mentalities are framed by three dimensions, have this sixth sense instinct. Your very religion is based on it, for you believe that in another life you shall step into time, or, as you call it, eternity. She leaned closer, so that her hair brushed his cheek. What is eternity, John Northwood? Is it not keeping forever ahead of the destroyer? The future is eternal, for it is never reached. Adam and I, through our new sense, which comprehends time and space, can vanish by stepping a few seconds into the future, the fourth dimension of space. Death can never reach us, not even accidental death unless that which causes death could also slip into the future, which is not yet possible. But if the fourth dimension is future time, why can one in the third dimension feel the touch of an unseen presence in the fourth dimension, hear his voice even? Thought vibration. The touch is not really felt, nor the voice heard. They are only imagined. The radioactive waves of the brain of even you Black Age people are swift enough to bridge space and time, and it is the mind that carries us beyond the third dimension. Her red mouth reached closer to him. Her blue eyes touched hidden forces that slept in remote cells of his being. You are going into eternal time, John Northwood, eternity without beginning or end. You understand? You feel it? Comprehend it? Now for the contact. Kiss me. Northwood had seen Athalia vanish under Adam's kiss. Suddenly, in one mad burst of understanding, he leaned over to his magnificent temptress. For a split second he felt the sweet pressure of baby-soft lips, and then the atoms of his body seemed to fly asunder. Black chaos held him for a frightful moment before he felt sanity return. He was back on the terrace again, with Eve by his side. They were standing now. The world about him looked the same, yet there was a subtle change in everything. Eve laughed softly. It is puzzling, isn't it? You're seeing everything as in a mirror. What was left before is now right. Only you and I are real. All else is but a vision, a dream. For now you and I are existing one minute in future time. Or, more simply, we are in the fourth dimension. To everything in the third dimension, we are invisible. Let me show you that Dr. Munson cannot see you. They went back to the room beyond the terrace. Dr. Munson was not present. There he goes, down the jungle path, said Eve, looking out a window. She laughed. Poor old fellow. The children of his genius are worrying him. They were standing in the recess formed by a bay window. Eve picked up his hand and laid it against her face, giving him the full, blasting glory of her smiling blue eyes. Northwood, looking away miserably, uttered a low cry. Coming over the field beyond were Adam and Athalia. By the trimming on the blue dress she wore, 
he could see that she was still in the fourth dimension, for he did not see her as a mirror image. A look of fear leaped to Eve's face. She clutched Northwood's arm, trembling. "'I don't want Adam to see that I have passed you beyond,' she gasped. "'We are existing but one minute in the future. Always Adam and I have feared to pass too far beyond the sweetness of reality. But now, so that Adam may not see us, we shall step five minutes into what is yet to be. And even he, with all his power, cannot see into a future that is more distant than that in which he exists. She raised her humid lips to his. Come, beloved. Northwood kissed her. Again came the moment of confusion, of the awful vacancy that was like death. And then he found himself and Eve in the laboratory, following Adam and Athalia down a long corridor. Athalia was crying and pleading frantically with Adam. Once she stopped and threw herself at his feet in a gesture of dramatic supplication, arms outflung, streaming eyes wide open with fear. Adam stooped and lifted her gently and continued on his way, supporting her against his side. Eve dug her fingers into Northwood's arm. Horror contorted her face, horror mixed with rage. My mind hears what he is saying, understands the vile plan he has made John Northwood. He is on his way to his laboratory to destroy not only you and most of these in New Eden, but me as well. He wants only a failure. Striding forward like an avenging goddess, she pulled Northwood after her. Hurry, she whispered. Remember, you and I are five minutes in the future, and Adam is only one. We are witnessing what will occur four minutes from now. We yet have time to reach the laboratory before him and be ready for him when he enters. And because he will have to go back to present time to do his work of destruction, I will be able to destroy him. Ah! Fierce joy burned in her flashing blue eyes, and her slender nostrils quivered delicately. Northwood, peeping at her in horror, knew that no mercy could be expected of her, and when she stopped at a certain door and inserted a key, he remembered Athalia. What if she should enter with Adam in present time? They were inside Adam's laboratory a huge apartment filled with queer apparatus and cages of live animals. The room was a strange paradox. Part of the equipment, the walls, and the floor was glistening with newness, and part was molding with extreme age. The powers of disintegration that haunt a tropical forest seemed to be devouring certain spots of the room. Here, in the midst of bright marble, was a section of wall that seemed as old as the pyramids. The surface on the stone had an appalling moldenness, as though it had been lifted from an ancient graveyard where it had lain in the festering ground for unwholesome centuries. Between cracks in this stained and decayed section of stone grew fetid moss that quivered with the microscopic organisms that infest age-rotten places. Sections of the flooring and woodwork also reeked with mustiness. In one dark, webby corner of the room lay a pile of bleached bones, 
still tinted with the ghastly grays and pinks of putrefaction. Northwood, overwhelmingly nauseated, withdrew his eyes from the bones only to see in another corner a pile of worm-eaten clothing that lay on the floor in the outline of a man. Faint with the reek of ancient mustiness, Northwood retreated to the door, dizzy and staggering. "'It sickens you,' said Eve, "'and it sickens me also, for death and decay are not pleasant. Yet nature, left to herself, reduces all to this.' Every grave that has yawned to receive its prey hides corruption no less shocking. Nature's forces of creation and destruction forever work in partnership. Never satisfied with her composition, she destroys and starts again, building, building towards the ultimate of perfection. Thus, it is natural that if Dr. Munson isolated the life-ray, nature's supreme force of compensation— isolation of the death-ray, should closely follow. Adam, thirsting for power, has succeeded. A few sweeps of his unholy ray of decomposition will undo all Dr. Munson's work in this valley and reduce it to a stinking holocaust of destruction, and the time for this striking has come. She seized his face and drew it toward her. Quick, she said. We'll have to go back to the third dimension. I could leave you safe in the fourth, but if anything should happen to me, you would be stranded forever in future time. She kissed his lips. In a moment he was back in the old familiar world, where right is right and left is left. Again the subtle change wrought by Eve's magic lips had taken place. Eve went to a machine standing in the corner of the room. Come here and get behind me, John Northwood. I want to test it before he enters. Northwood stood behind her shoulder. Now watch, she ordered. I shall turn it on one of those cages of guinea pigs over there. She swung the projector around, pointed it at the cage of small, squealing animals, and threw a lever. Instantly a cone of black mephitis shot forth a loathsome, bituminous stream of putrefaction that reeked of the grave and the cesspool of the utmost reaches of decay before the dust accepts the disintegrated atoms. The first touch of seething, pitchy destruction brought screams of sudden agony from the guinea pigs, but the screams were cut short as the little animals fell in shocking, instant decay. The very cage which imprisoned them shriveled and retreated from the hellish, devouring breath that struck its noisome rot into the heart of the wood and the metal, reducing both to revolting ruin. Eve cut off the frightful power, and the black cone disappeared, leaving the room putrid with its defilement. "'And Adam would do that to the world,' she said, her blue eyes like electric-shot icicles. "'He would do it to you, John Northwood, and to me.' Her full bosom strained under the passion beneath. Listen, she raised her hand warningly. He comes. The destroyer comes. A hand was at the door. Eve reached for the lever, and the same moment Northwood leaned over her imploringly. If Athalia is with him, he gasped, you will not harm her. A wild shriek at the door a slight scuffle, and then the doorknob was wrenched as though two were fighting over it. For God's sake, Eve, 
implored Northwood. Wait! Wait! No! She shall die, too! You love her! Icy, cruel eyes cut into him, and a new, flushed hand tried to push him aside. The door was straining open. A beloved voice shrieked, John! Eve and Northwood both leaped for the lever. Under her tender white flesh, she was as strong as a man. In the midst of the struggle, her red, humid lips approached his, closer, closer. Their merest pressure would thrust him into future time, where the laboratory and all it contained would be but a shadow, and where he would be helpless to interfere with her terrible will. He saw the door open and Adam stride into the room. Behind him, lying prone in the hall where she had probably fainted, was Athalia. In a mad burst of strength, he touched the lever together with Eve. The projector, belching forth its stinking breath of corruption, swung in a mad arc over the ceiling, over the walls, and then straight at Adam. Then, quicker than thought, came the accident. Eve, attempting to throw Northwood off, tripped, fell half over the machine, and with a short scream of despair dropped into the black path of destruction. Northwood paused, horrified. The death ray was pointed at an inner wall of the room, which, even as he looked, crumbled and disappeared, bringing down upon him dust more foul than any obscenity the bowels of the earth might yield. In an instant the black cone ate through the outer parts of the building, where crashing stone and screams that were more horrible because of their shortness followed the ruin that swept far into the far reaches of the valley. The paralyzing odor of decay took his breath, numbed his muscle, until, of all that huge building, the wall behind him and one small section of the room by the doorway alone remained whole. He was trying to nerve himself, to reach for the lever close to that quiet formless thing still partly draped over the machine, when a faint sound in the door electrified him. At first he dared not look, but his own name, spoken almost in a gasp, gave him courage. Athalia lay on the floor, apparently untouched. He jerked the lever violently before running to her, exultant with the knowledge that his own efforts to keep the ray from the door had saved her. And you're not hurt, he gathered her close. John, I saw it get Adam, she pointed to a new mound of moldy clothes on the floor. Oh, it is hideous for me to be so glad, but he was going to destroy everything and everyone except me. He made the ray projector for that one purpose. Northwood looked over the pile of putrid ruins, which a few minutes ago had been a building. There was not a wall left intact. His intention is accomplished, Athalia, he said sadly. Let's get out before more stones fall. In a moment they were in the open. An ominous stillness seemed to grip the very air, the awful silence of the polar waste which lay not far beyond the mountains. How dark it is, John, cried Athalia. Dark and cold. The sunshine projector, gasped Northwood. It must have been destroyed. Look, dearest, the golden light has disappeared. 
and the warm air of the valley will lift immediately. That means a polar blizzard, she shuddered and clung closer to him. I've seen Antarctic storms, John. They're death. Northwood avoided her eyes. Northwood avoided her eyes. There's the sunship. We'll give the ruins the once over in case there are any survivors. Then we'll save ourselves. Even a cursory examination of the moldy piles of stone and dust convinced them that there could be no survivors. The ruins looked as though they had lain in those crumbling piles for centuries. Northwood, smothering his repugnance, stepped among them, among the green, slimy stones and the unspeakable, revolting debris, staggering back and faint and shocked when he came upon dust that was once human. God, he groaned, hands over eyes. We're alone, Athalia. Alone in a charnel house. The laboratory housed the entire population, didn't it? Yes. Needing no sleep for food, we did not need houses. We all worked here, under Dr. Munson's generalship, and lately under Adams, like a little band of soldiers fighting for a great cause. Let's go to the sunship, dearest. But Daddy Munson was in the library, sobbed Athalia. Let's look for him a little longer. Sudden remembrance came to Northwood. No, Athalia. He left the library. I saw him go down the jungle path several minutes before I and Eve went to Adam's laboratory. Then he might be safe, her eyes danced. He might have gone to the sunship. Shivering, she slumped against him. Oh, John, I'm cold. Her face was blue. Northwood jerked off his coat and wrapped it around her, taking the intense cold against his unprotected shoulders. The low, gray sky was rapidly darkening, and the feeble light of the sun could scarcely pierce the clouds. It was disturbing to know that even the summer temperature in the Antarctic was far below zero. "'Come, girl,' said Northwood gravely. "'Hurry. It's snowing.' They started to run down the road through the narrow strip of jungle. The death ray had cut huge swatches in the tangle of trees and vines, and now areas of heaped debris, livid with the colors of recent decay, exhaled a mephitic humidity altogether alien to the snow that fell in soft, slow flakes. Each hesitated to voice the new fear. Had the sunship been destroyed? By the time they reached the open field, the snow stung their flesh like sharp needles, but it was not yet thick enough to hide from them a hideous fact. The sunship was gone. It might have occupied one of the several foul areas on the green grass, where the searching death ray had made the very soil putrefy and the rocks crumbling into shocking dust. Northwood snatched Athalia to him, too full of despair to speak. A sudden terrific flurry of snow whirled around them, and they were almost blown from their feet by the icy wind that tore over the unprotected field. It won't be long, said Athalia faintly. Freezing doesn't hurt, John, dear. It isn't fair, Athalia. There never would have been such a marriage as ours. Dr. Munson searched the world to bring us together. For scientific experiment, she sobbed. I'd rather die, John. 
I want an old-fashioned home, a black-age family. I want to grow old with you and leave the earth to my children. Or else I want to die here now under the kind white blanket the snow is already spreading over us. She drooped her arms. Clinging together, they stood in the howling wind, looking at each other hungrily, as though they would snatch from death this one last picture of the other. Northwood's freezing lips translated some of the futile words that crowded against them. I love you because you are not perfect. I hate perfection. Yes, perfection is the only hopeless state, John. That is why Adam wanted to destroy, so that he might build again. They were sitting in the snow now, for they were very tired. The storm began whistling louder, as though it were only a few feet above their heads. That sounds almost like the sunship, said Athalia drowsily. It's only the wind. Hold your face down so it won't strike your flesh so cruelly. I'm not suffering. I'm getting warm again. She smiled at him sleepily. Little icicles began to form on their clothing, and the powdery snow frosted their uncovered hair. Suddenly came a familiar voice. Hock, Gott! Dr. Munson stood before them, covered with snow until he looked like a polar bear. Get up, he shouted. Quick, to the sunship! He seized Athalia and jerked her to her feet. She looked at him sleepily for a moment, and then threw herself at him and hugged him frantically. You're not dead! Taking each by the arm, he half dragged them to the sunship, which had landed only a few feet away. In a few minutes, he had hot brandy for them. While they sipped greedily, he talked between working the sunship's controls. No, I wouldn't say it was lucky moment that drew me to the sunship. When I saw Eve trying to charm John, I had what you American slangists call a hunch, which sent me to the sunship to get it off the ground so that Adam couldn't commandeer it. And what is a hunch but a mental penetration into the fourth dimension? For a long moment he brooded, absent-minded. I was in the air when the black ray, which I suppose is Adam's deviltry, began to destroy everything it touched. From a safe elevation, I saw it wreck all my work. A sudden spasm crossed his face. I've flown over the entire valley. We're the only survivors. Thank God. And so at last you confess that it was not well to tamper with human life? Northwood warmed with hot brandy, was his old self again. Oh, I have not altogether wasted my efforts. I went to elaborate pains to bring together a perfect man and a perfect woman of what Adam called our black age. He smiled at them whimsically. And who can say to what extent you have thus furthered natural evolution? Northwood slipped his arm around Athalia. Our children might be more than geniuses, doctor. Dr. Munson nodded his huge, shaggy head gravely. The true instinct of a creature of the light, he declared.
Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Misa. Hi, I'm Evan. Hi, I'm Will. We're going to talk about Creatures of the Light by Sophie Wenzel Ellis. <laughs> you got it right! Uh, yeah, I got it right. <laughs> this is first published in uh, Astounding Stories. Um, blanking on the uh, month, but it was the 1930. Was that February 1930? I sent everybody the PDF. How come you that, don't know? Yeah, that sounds right. February 1930. <laughs> there we go. The you know, January... Oh, oh no! You're right. It's February, February here. Yeah, yeah I think it's February. It's, it's like the second issue of Astounding Stories. Oh, really? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Ever? Yeah, 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 I think so. Oh. Um, it, it, Astounding comes after Amazing. Amazing is like uh, it's then 20s, and then Astounding is the big competitor. Um, this is a. Uh, it says. Actually, it's, we call it Astounding Stories, and then later it turns into Analog, or just Astounding and then a- Analog. But um, if you look at the subtitle on the cover, uh, which does unfortunately does not illustrate the story that we're reading, because that's the greatest cover ever with this slime mold cl- crawling out of a spaceship as a, a fliver lands. Um, it says Astounding Stories of Super Science and Super Dash Science. Super Dash Science, yeah. Uh, I'm not 100% positive, but this may be the first super science story to uh, be on the SFF Audio podcast. And uh, there's a reason we don't do them. (laughs) (laughs) Will, there's a reason we don't do super science stories. um, Because they're kind of (laughs) crappy. On the other whatever hand, whatever do you mean? <laughs> whatever I, I mean, have you read this story? Um, I, I, I want to uh, ask you this: uh, Did you had you read it when you suggested it? Yeah, yeah, I had. Okay, I'm interested to hear why. Um, I know that it's on LibriVox. The whole volume of Astounding is this whole issue is on LibriVox, and I listened to uh, a couple of stories in there, including um, one I'm going to, or I have, I think I will have. I will have been suggested suggesting to Eric to do as a reading short and deep. Um, and that one's called into space. Did you listen to that one as well? Or read that one by SP Meek, Captain Meek. Remind me what's in that one. It was uh, the first time I listened to this issue was uh, a month or two ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, so these stories, you know, uh, I feel like what uh, Astounding was doing back in the day was just here's some volume for you, just mm-hmm. like just read it all. Like it doesn't matter if it's good, bad. Uh, it's all going to be kind of out there. But the Captain Meek story on there was that one of his um, uh, stories about the guy from the Secret Service who goes around like doing experiments and solving Mm-mm. super crimes, or is that a different one? That must be a different one. Uh, the, this one is its basically a retelling of H.G. Wells's, uh The First Men in the Moon, um, which is a great, great novel, which we have done on this podcast, but uh, as a short story and with a different uh, twist uh, on the ending. But basically, it's anti-gravity spaceship, you know, instead of using rockets to get st- s- s- somewhere, use anti-gravity. Um, which is, you know, sort of a bullshit, but it, it's a one one bullshit gimme. Uh, the book you chose for us instead, <laughs> Creatures of the Light, 
I don't think there's a scientific bone in the entire thing that's based uh, on actual science, but there's a lot based oh, no. on bullshit science, man. <laughs> bullshit science is everywhere in this story. So yes, there's uh, lots of. Would you like? Would you like me to? Would you like me to launch into my uh, defense of the story? Please, please do. Yes. Okay, so please here's my do. defense of the story. Or why I think it's an interesting story to read. It's um, interesting. I think for there's. Sure. Uh, yeah, I both uh, will. I find it interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think there's uh, a lot to be desired in some of the prose here. It's like uh, clunky and very silly. The yep. story is like uh, a very silly story, which I don't think is uh, what Sophie Wenzel Ellis necessarily intended. <laughs> Although. No, I think uh, she did. I think she did. I, I've read her some of her other stuff, and she's kind of silly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. No, so. Uh, so um, uh, if we're going to locate this story in the, like, you know, literary canon, right? Like, we're, uh, I think we're, like, somewhere in between um, uh, uh, Frankenstein and uh, what's the, what's the Arthur C. Clarke 2001 A Space Odyssey? We'll say the novelization of that. Mm-hmm. Like, we're, we're, we're 50% in between these two stories, right? Like, so this is a story about how, uh, uh, mankind has like some kind of evolutionary destiny to become mm-hmm. godlike, you know. So there's like the the Arthur C. Clarke in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have the like, uh, should we tamper with life in this way? Is this a good thing to do? Mm-hmm. Can we create a better kind of person through science? Uh, you know. So we have Mary Shelley, and so we're uh, you know we're halfway between these two stories, and our stop off at this point in history is eugenics. Uh, mm-hmm. So. Um, so you have like so that's uh, interesting in terms of the ideology of science, dude. Um, that's the which I think totally, totally interesting. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's where we locate this in terms of science fiction. And then uh, what I like about the story, even more than that, is uh, uh, it has this sort of uh, like fantastic voyage quality to it, mm-hmm. where. Um, you know, our protagonist, you know, his friend comes over and is like, hey, have you read this science article? And then, like, it's just, yeah, it's just like a nonstop journey. He's chasing this, like, scary-looking, beautiful man, yeah. and then they're taken up in the sunship, and then we're in a lost land in Antarctica watching. And then we're, like, traveling into the fourth dimension, and we'll put quotation marks around that. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> and, uh, you know, as soon as the story has started, almost, uh, or as soon as you get a picture of everything that exists in the universe of this story, um, just uh, how um, deranged these experiments are, uh, you know, fold in on themselves and everything breaks apart. And uh, we get our happy ending, uh, but we've been on this this crazy romp. I think um, this kind of storytelling... Uh, lives on more in like comic books than it does in like actual prose, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is. I, I, I can see why Will likes it. I, I'm thinking now about all those Superman, Superboy, Superdog. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That you read. Those are super know. science stories. Yeah, like like a silent movie kind of evil yeah. train villain mustaches <laughs> type thing. Yep. Right, yeah, right, this right. would be a good movie, I think. A good silent movie. <laughs> a good yeah, bad yeah. movie. It's got that sort of like jerky thing. No, but the comic book is the comic book uh, observation is Gordon because as I was listening to this, the what I kept thinking about is Captain America because mm-hmm. Captain, Amer- Captain he's America. A, he's a product of super science. 
Well, because he's given that super serum to make himself a better person, but so so is the Red Skull, and his his bad qualities are accentuated. So I kept think I kept thinking of the be- the Red Skull and Adam interchangeably You're in my head as I was to listening think so, to this. Because that's exactly where Captain America is one of the first superheroes, like technically, right? Uh, we've got Superman, we've got Batman, and we've got Captain America as, as basically the first superheroes. There's a couple other. Uh, mm-hmm. Amazing examples, including uh, oh my god! If everybody hasn't read it, it's so amazing. A story by Francis Stevens um, that is basically the first super super powered superhero story, and it's an origin story, and even gets a superhero name. Um, and it's done for it's done in a super science mode, and it's from 1904, which is crazy. What is it? It's it's called um, yum yum yum. Oh, uh, this uh, I've got it here. Uh, the curious case of Thomas Dunbar. I'm um, just typing it. Thomas Dun. Yeah, the curious experience of Thomas Dunbar. Thomas Dunbar is our Clark Kent, or uh, rather, he's our Superman in this story. Um, and he his superhero name is suggested at the end is Samson, uh-huh. which is pretty uh-huh. interesting. But it, what's so interesting about it is from 1904, and it's never been acknowledged. I, I find no evidence that anybody's ever acknowledged it as a, as basically the first superhero story, because wow, it, it's so weird that the story about a guy who acts has basically bitten by a radioactive spider, except it's not a radioactive spider, um, and you know the mechanism to create him is. Uh, Unique, you know, it, it'll never come up again. Nobody can ever be a superhero like him. Just like that's why you don't have ten thousand Spider Men, right? Except when they need a new Spider Woman or Spider Boy or whatever. <laughs> but yeah, it's a it's a this super science uh, aspect of the story. That's basically the the fun uh, part, that, and that's why it's an astounding. But Sophie Wenzel uh, Ellis um, has a. Uh, She's also very sensuous as to bodies. She loves talking about people's bodies and how they look. Lips. Their lips, their um, their Ru- yeah, rounded toes and face, splattered yep. with startling features. <laughs> splattered with startling features. It's just like what kind of leg? I, I was That's pretty like, startling. Did I, not, did I hear that right? Splattered. <laughs> you heard I, that and right? Then I, then I looked at the PDF. Like, no, that's what she said. Like, uh, a very, very strange uh, sort of description. Yeah, yes. She says people are, are they're so beautiful, they're scenery. <laughs> Magnificent scenery. That's, but that's what her whole eugenics was based on. Pretty. Yes, yes. And uh, that's the other thing. I, I was thinking Will maybe suggested this because um, I, I'm getting, I get into arguments on Twitter with people about, about uh, w- whether people are racist back then or uh, they knew that they were being bad or but basically they're just attacking Lovecraft for being racist which is perfectly reasonable he was a racist and attacking him for being racist is perfectly reasonable but if you dismiss everything he wrote because of that you're really missing out because lots of people were racist back then I don't know if Sophie Wenzel Ellis was but I would suspect that she could have been because uh, <laughs> she fundamentally misunderstands all sorts of stuff. <laughs> and genetics doesn't work that way. Um, uh, 
So evolution I, doesn't work well, the well, way she thinks it does. This kind of uh, yes, evolution teleological evolution. Yes, that's at work here. I think I was. You know who I was thinking? I was thinking of a Philip Dick story. Which one? When I was older man. This. The Infinance. The Infinance. Oh, I think oh. it's called The Infinite. Yeah, that's a pretty rare um, uh, or obscure short story. Yeah, I don't know if you guys done that. We haven't done it yet. Thought, no. ever thought about the story. But it has that. I, don't do it. I mean, it's not worth it, really. But it's got this, it's got this same idea of kind of a teleological evolution, mm-hmm. right? There's this destiny. And, there, and I think in that story, it's hamsters, kind of. It's some, they're, they're allowed to evolve for like, millions of years in a few seconds and they evolve past humans but they all go in one direction and then they say something like oh you'll get there too eventually mm-hmm. it's kind of like there's this just this is the way and i think that's that's in science that must be in science at the time dude it is so kind of like, it's yeah, so in the public consciousness evolution. yes yeah and 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 that i mean honestly a lot of racism is tied up with basically mm-hmm. fundamental misunderstanding of what that there is an evolutionary ladder right now, love you. I are doing some great work on your podcast, Evan. I've been loving your H.P. Lovecraft stuff um, because your analyses are so weird compared to most people's stuff. Like even I don't go in places you go because I my brain is weird, but it's weird in a different way than yours. Um, so you're like, oh yeah, it's all about the sea. I never noticed that. Oh, and it's all about forgetting. What? <laughs> yeah, you're right. Um, but yeah. It, it, you cannot get away from you cannot get away from a fundamental misunderstanding of evolution and mm-hmm. racism they are so tied together that we have to almost not tell anybody that evolution is real in order for them to understand the racism is bullshit right it's almost like they're so tied together now obviously that's not true cuz I'm not racist, and I think I understand re- evolution pretty well. There is no ladder. There is no uh, end state. There is no perfection. Uh, I mean, the idea in this story that, uh, <laughs> well, she, she, says, uh, she, she says what, um, she has her, her uh, German scientist, her humpback ger- crazy German scientist, <laughs> say um, the first, uh, the first uh, creature that crawled out of the sea was a man. Like, oh, really? Yes. <laughs> That's quite, yeah, yes. quite uh, yes. helpful. Yes. Well, well, Thank let's you. Get the, let, let's get the quote right, because I like to quote from... All right. It, it was this yearning for perfection which sets man apart from all the life, which made him man, even in the rudimentary stages of his development. He was man when he wallowed in the slime of the new world and yearned for the air above. He will still be man when he's evolved into that glorious creature of the future whose body is deathless and whose mind rules the universe. Yeah, that's that's a really weird, strange theological apotheosis yeah. sort of op, sort of thing. Like, like man's going to evolve <laughs> into gods, and has been man since he was since he was first a primitive lungfish. No, <laughs> I, I, I <laughs> love the premise. Catch the part of the story where um, uh, the professor says something like, "Well, we don't know that all life is it part of an experiment." <laughs> I didn't speak, I didn't notice that. Yeah, yeah. He uh I mean it's just a throwaway comment he mm-hmm. makes. Well that uh, that's basically the way she writes though, is, is she has she has taken all her bursting ideas and put them into a plot. 
there's all sorts of stuff that's like not only do we get the the helicopter sunship solar powered helicopter that can travel faster than than it's it travels so fast that everything turns gray i don't think so <laughs> just wrong uh, uh, she she every time she comes to like a a uh, i don't know a scene she can add new ideas new scientific ideas that are science <laughs> super scientific ideas. yes absolutely super science <laughs> they're beyond science you get a life uh, ray of course you get a death ray of course they go together but they're, not- they're the same thing though right like mm-hmm. like the concepts are never uh disentangled whatever the creation force would be and the destruction force would be because <laughs> if you shoot stuff with the creation force um it dies and new stuff is born right. uh, yeah, i bet we learned that in star trek 3 uh, the search for Spock, the Genesis torpedo. Mm-hmm. So yeah, <laughs> the, the, the nice part about the search for Spock, though, and and I mean that's great. That's really well done. Is that it's it's a metaphor, right? Uh, here it's not a metaphor. I mean, no, she's, actually, she, yeah. she's using she's using. Uh, honestly, here's what I think. She's basically she's like Ed Wood. I really like Ed Wood. <laughs> he's just wrong about everything. <laughs> he's oh, he's really God. funny. He's he's hilarious. He's his his uh his instincts are completely wrong about stuff. Uh but he's so earnest and uh, you know forthright uh, are, about are, what um, he... are her instincts wrong though? Like uh, so yeah. I, I think the uh <laughs> I think maybe they are, but uh hear me out. Uh <laughs> yeah, sure. the uh so so this is a tale of super science. It's not um uh, it's obviously not what we would call hard SF, nope. uh, like not nowhere close to that. Um, I think really it's, it's more of a fable, right? Like, um, yes, it's a science, science, science fable. Yes. Yeah. It's more of a fable about, uh, you know, uh, like it's the overreach of this German scientist that we're worried about. Although mm-hmm. the overreach doesn't doom the German scientist. Nope. He was still right to try this, but it was doomed <laughs> to fail. <laughs> <laughs> you're uh, it, 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 it's exactly what you say it is <laughs> yeah yeah he was i mean they at the end they're all like chill about it too mm-hmm. like uh he, he still the, the, adam and eve at the end he yeah. Didn't yeah. Again, so well yeah well it's it's interesting though he has his adam and eve but the girl called eve is actually dead because she's because she i i mean i didn't like the sexual politics this i mean Eve, the, uh, the the superwoman, is sexually aggressive. She knows what she wants. She and in the end, she's just she's just summarily killed because she trips. I I, I <laughs> she's like, the savior. She's the anti Eve. She's the savior. Oh, there's a lady I, I, named I, I, Lilith I, in there too. I, remember, she's Aisha. Yeah, yeah. She, yeah you're right. She, she's she's destroyed. Oh, now in the same I, way as now Aisha. I see how you you tied it all together there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like she's this, uh, you know, superwoman. She, uh, like, she's obsessed with the love of this human man, uh, and like trips in front of a beam and is destroyed utterly. It's <laughs> the, I mean, it's a similar plot to she here. Um, uh, just want to go out of the This one has gerbils, or uh... <laughs> oh yeah, screaming gerbils. <laughs> that, that was so sad. Um, <laughs> I love I love the part also. Uh, I mean, it, this book is so funny. <laughs> One of the uh, he, he, they get out of the spaceship or uh, the sunship in Antarctica, 
and uh, all the whole time he's like, there's something going on in this ship. Uh, somebody's pillow head, head has been on this pillow, and then the ship takes off. <laughs> and then the scientist says, hey, let's build igloos. <laughs> we'll live on penguins. I'm like, you're just wearing fur coats. Aren't your hands going to get cold? <laughs> Doesn't mention yeah. anything about gloves or shovels or anything. And, 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 then the, and then the ship comes back because the main... Because the, uh, the the antagonist just w- wants to see them have, torment them as he does his thing. It's like that <laughs> felt really stupid. Like, okay, he steals the ship and then he comes. Yeah, it is. It is described that uh, that our, our our heroine convinced them, but that felt re- really yo yo y. Like, okay, he steals the ship and then comes back just to grab them to bring them to the new Eden. It's like, what the point? What was the point of all that? Why not just go straight to the new Eden and just be done with it it just seems like a pointless diversion the new eden though reminds me again of a comic book in the marvel universe there is a tropical valley magical tropical valley into antarctica so dude i'm on the savage land wikipedia entry oh you are (laughs) well done jesse thank you that's another will thing although i i sort of think of his him as more of a dc man um, I am more of a DC guy, but I, I go in for uh, Kazar and K- the Savage Kazar Land. Is, Kazar is very uh, Will. <laughs> yeah, well, um, he's got a he's got a pet the continuation lion or something. Of, right? Yeah, they're the continuation of like the like Burroughs canon into yeah, right. uh, DC comic, rather into Marvel comics. Uh, I mean, it's just a like uh, the Savage Land is a, a swipe from. Uh, cast back in the right. um, uh, Land of Time Forgot books. Yeah, great book. Uh, uh, and of course, Kazar is this, like total swipe from Tarzan. Like he's also a British lord. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, so uh, so yeah yeah. But it, uh, that's totally that trope is totally here. I mean, and you see like uh, lost location in Antarctica. You know, mm-hmm. in the literature. Uh, in a lot of places there's an andre norton story called uh people of the crater mm-hmm. uh where uh you know there's this uh alien civilization in antarctica that you know spawned atlantis and moo and all these things but then they made the mistake of uh breeding with uh dark-skinned people which destroyed their civilizations oh, uh, sigh. <laughs> uh, so uh, you know i think it's all there um i think the uh the madcap kind of bursting at the seams with uh, concepts mm-hmm. uh, that like they don't have to be run down, right? Like if you explore any of these concepts too deeply, um, you might get like a little bit bored with them. So she just mm-hmm. has to keep uh, going. It's She's pretty, juggling. Um, yeah, she just keeps adding balls to the, <laughs> the show. I, I think of it as being sort of like uh, if you're like driving a car and it's a car that gets uh, low mileage for like the fuel you put in it, like. She's putting in all these like super science concepts, and like they'll take you like a few paragraphs, mm-hmm. and then you have to put something else in the gas tank. Mm-hmm. On the Wikipedia, uh, not the Wikipedia, the ISFDB entry for it, it uh, lists the following tags: Life Ray, Super Race, Solar Sphere. That's actually their ship. Uh, <laughs> uh, telepathic, Death Ray, Mental Power, uh, Superman. And LibriVox and Superman small s because there's a Superman and he's uh, it, it's missing Invisible Man, uh, which he also is, and also time travel sort of kind yeah because yeah. only this fourth dimension this fourth it's, dimensional travel so yes mm-hmm. yeah I mean and his invisibility is an invisibility right, right. he's communicating yeah. with them from 
the future. Uh, like, conventional travel. It's an unconventional yeah, like form of invisibility. Yeah. Uh, it, I mean, it even says, you know, like you didn't actually hear his voice or like see him doing things around the ship. He was communicating with you telepathically through mm. the time barrier and it like caused you <laughs> while to he's sleeping the, like, invisibly on the pillow around. yeah the way you just <laughs> it sounds so good <laughs> yeah that's what the, like it needs like the story maybe needs an interlocutor uh, but there's there's a lot going on here that I think Ed is, Wood needs to do the narration <laughs> um, like this is a story that uh I just I um Every part of it is very interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, even um, so, uh, who's this uh, perfect black age woman that uh, they find as this, uh, you know, uh, young woman who had tuberculosis? She was working in a sweatshop in New York. Mm-hmm. You know, this was like somebody who was doomed to die. But uh, actually, she had uh, she had the good genes. So the scientists came and rescued her. The scientist and, with the uh, humpback who, who, who knows. <laughs> Who knows uh, how to pair people up. Who doesn't want to hear his hunchback because he wants to make sure he's pushing people towards perfection. So he's keeping his disabilities like what? Yeah. So I want to I want to make a really interesting comparison. So the reason I find this book hilarious and amusing and, and enjoyable as opposed to horrific and monstrous and terrible. Um, <laughs> I think it's all of those, actually. <laughs> well, but the thing is, is. It, it this is <laughs> this is like a kitten being angry at you. Oh yeah, that's real tough there, right? Versus like a wildcat, you know, like a uh, uh, I don't know, a lynx or something that which would really hurt you. So there's a, a very evil book called uh, Beggars in Spain. You guys heard? Oh, of this Nancy book? Cress. Nancy yes. Cress is. Uh, well, there's a bunch of books in this series, or at least a couple. Um, and that's an evil book. And the reason it's evil is because it's a modern book basically doing the same stuff. It has a new race of people who don't need to sleep and therefore are superior to you. Um, well, and- well, well just, just, I just want to clarify for, for the listeners. It's not only that they don't sleep so they can do more stuff. They, to prove in in that in the genetic modifications to not be able to sleep, they're also superior in what they do in their regular day as well. Just want to clarify that. They're, they're they're superior to you. They're eugenically more pure. Now she doesn't use the word eugenically, but they're genetically engineered, and they don't have any of the defects that we have. And of course, this treatment or whatever this uh, development is, it's only for the richies. So <laughs> it's basically it's a cl- it's a class war between. Uh, I don't know the haves and liberal, have nots, yeah. the liberal elites <laughs> and all, all the uh, what are those uh, d- a basket of deplorables, right? It, it's just a horrible, horrible book, like purely evil, and people don't see it as that, and that's what makes me so upset. It's like you thought this was a good book. Oh my god, you're a monster. Whereas <laughs> if you're reading this story, which is like just ridiculous, she has she has the ship moving so fast. Over, I don't know, the from North America to uh, to the East Coast in North America to Antarctica. It's moving so fast that the everything becomes gray. No matter how fast you're moving, the stuff outside doesn't become gray because we're not that close to the speed of light. <laughs> That's just not how it works. So she just doesn't. She does just not. It, it's it's like it's like if you if you took. Uh, 
Plan 9 from outer space and said, this is our plan for the space program. I'd say, no, don't do it. This is a mistake. (laughs) You don't understand. This is an error. This is not actually how we need to... It's... But... I this is 1930. That, though. This is 1930. This is 1930. Yeah, right. well, this is pre-Nazis. Yeah. This is pre. Um, no, I mean well, I can forget pre- about the grave speed thing. That yeah, but that—that's just an example. Uh, like, yeah, just okay. the, Her basic, like, uh, her fundamental misunderstanding of, of, like, of what ge- what genes and sexual like but, sexual I, I, selection I, is for, like. I, I have the quote something. here Go if you want if yeah, you want to know what she said. Sure. She said, You you are a man, uh she he he said softly, what all men would be if we followed nature's plan that only the fit shall survive. But modern science is permitting the unfit to live in to mix their defective beings with the developed the developing race. race. Yes, yeah. Yeah, this, this this is just the eugenics of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But she doesn't even like the author here doesn't even get like Paradise Lost. Like there's a moment where the kid reads Paradise Lost to I guess this to Northrop, right? Yes. Word for word, word, Rachel was able to give him Paradise Lost from memory. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually stopped there and I looked up the Audible edition of Paradise Lost. Mm-hmm. It's nine hours. <laughs> 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 That's what I'm saying. Except, well, except the last four pages. <laughs> yeah, right. what, what so it's, it's like eight yeah. hours and forty-five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, just want to be accurate. That's why I'm thinking it's it, she's either doing it unconsciously, which is hilarious. It makes it Ed Wood, or she's doing it consciously, and it's a comedy. And I, I, I have some evidence that she is comedic on purpose, but. I mean, it is literally a comedy, right? It's a, I think it's so. a story yeah. with a happy ending right, that ends right. in marriage. Yeah, the, te- the technical definition of comedy, yes. Um, you are correct. That's what makes Shakespeare's comedies comedies. Not that they're funny, because all of his plays are funny. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, there's, some, uh, there's some great fart jokes in... Uh, I mean, that's why I love uh, The Tempest so much. It's, it's just got the greatest fart jokes on the planet. <laughs> well, well, like I said before, Shakespeare wrote fart jokes for, for the... For the high class and poetry for the low class. That's yep, similar. Um, and speaking of poetry, um, I I want to show you some of my evidence of um, of Sophie Wenzel Ellis being a, uh, a uh, self conscious comedian. Um, this is from a 1927 newspaper publication. Um, it's called "Heard in a Grocery." I'm going to just read it for you here. Wait a minute. How do I spell herd? H-E-A-R-D. Okay. But spelling is very important for this. Um, uh, You can find this through uh, the Wikipedia entry, I think entry citation number seven or something like that. Um, It took me to this. Uh, Ami, a sack of flour said, and and heaved a doleful sigh. I'd like to marry peaches there and turn into a pie. You'd better not get fresh, young man, cried Peaches, blushing red. I never sausage, never nerve as yours. She's mine, the sugar said. You lie, L-Y-E. And flour grits his teeth. I'll crack her neck or try. Sweet Peaches is, as you well know, the apple of my eye. I do not carrot 
all for you. You're not well-bred, B-R-E-A-D, said she. <laughs> Dear Gasoline, against me, please. You are the one for me. Oh, mustard be me, smiled Gasoline. <laughs> then let us not delay, L-E-T-T-U-C-E. -E. <laughs> if you will beat, E-E-T, if it off with me, I'll marry you today. My celery is rather small, as opposed to salary. But I'll catch up in time, or catch up in time. We're such a happy pair, P-E-A-R. My dear, our life will be sublime. That's snuff, the milk yelled, pale with wrath. Ice cream protest against this sweet peaches needs some sage advice. This, the silly little, uh, the little silly miss. There's only one way to bring peace. P e a s. I'll cabbage this sweet prize. Turn up your lips now, peaches, dear potatoes. Hide your eyes. Sweet peaches sighed upon his neck. That suits me to a T. T e a. Uh, cress me again. I'm a, I'm in a jam, but soda like soda like to be. <laughs> and that's the end. So Sophie Wenzel Ellis in the Progressive Grocer. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure that terrible poetry was on purpose. Oh, that's brilliant. I hope so. <laughs> if it's not, then yeah, I'm hoping that was self consciously bad. So her first publication uh, on ISFDB is, I think, uh, 1929. It's a short story called The White Wizard. Um, there are other Wikipedia entries, uh, sorry, uh, PDF page entries. I've got, like, some other stuff of hers on the PDF page. I've also now added this whole volume to, oh, except for one story, to the PDF page in case people want to check it out. But um, I also found uh, her letter to Weird Tales, the only one we know about, probably the only one that exists, um, February 1927, um, and it says this. Sophie Wenzel Ellis of Little Rock, Arkansas, writes to the Erie. That's the name of the column. Uh, the happiest days of the month for me are those immediately following the first, when I am reading weird tales. In my clipping file of short stories, there are more distinctive stories from your magazine than any other. Why do you not select a group of your best stories and issue them in book form? Question mark. I should like to see you publish more stories of the sort which is exquisitely fanciful, such as, quote, The Woman of the Wood by uh, Abraham Merritt, uh, The Moonbog, uh, that's by Lovecraft, The Outsider, that's by Lovecraft, and The Dreamer of Atlanat by uh, E. Hoffman The Dreamer Price. of what? Atlanat. Atlanat. Is that supposed to be Atlantis just garbled up? Uh, A-T-L-A-N-A-A-T. -A -A so I haven't read that story. Atlantis. In any case, um, uh, E. Hoffman Price is uh, one of these, one of these uh, weird tales writers who's well-respected, although he co-wrote something with Lovecraft as well. Correspondent. And, and, she's got some, and she's got some stuff that was in Weird Tales. Oh, yeah. Most, in fact, I think about half of her stuff is in Weird Tales. Oh, there's Ghost Stories. Okay. So uh, I know at least a couple are in Weird Tales. She's in Amazing uh, Dwellers in the Houses in Weird Tales, and that's already up. Yeah, um, I read that one earlier this year, 
uh, reviewed that on my Twitter. I thought that was a pretty good one. Mm-hmm. Um, and White Lady's fun silly. as well. That's in uh, Strange Tales of Mystery and Terror, which is a competitor to Wick, uh, Weird Tales. You How does say? it compare to this? Uh, similar? <laughs> uh, <laughs> different genres, though. Yeah, uh, the the one I read by her in short is like it's like a um, uh, it's like in the Lovecraftian vein. In so far as uh, the central character is like like a mad uh, Arab scientist, uh-huh. but the 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 plot is Does like he have very. A hunchback, though? Um, no, well, uh, or a hunch nose? What are they? No. <laughs> he's like he smells bad and is evil. Uh, oh God! <laughs> but uh, like oh, no. so so the the plot is really interesting though. The uh, so the protagonist is this uh, mad Arab lawyer. And like the like mad scientist. Oh yeah, you be, did this review on Twitter. I'm remembering it. Now. Yeah, yeah. The mad scientist is about to be put to death uh, for murdering his assistant, and uh, he's like basically okay with getting put to death. He's really weird, um, <laughs> but he really hits it off with the judge, who is an Arabic scholar, and like you know, so also kind of understands alchemy and mad science, uh, as of course um, all. Arabs do, mm-hmm. um, of course, uh, and yeah, yeah, it goes recently. without saying. <laughs> yeah, so uh, so uh, the uh, the so the mad scientist um, to pay his lawyer for uh, defending him uh, before he's executed, he leaves everything to his lawyer and says, "Hey, you can probably sell this to the judge uh, because he really likes the kind of books that I have." Uh, so the lawyer sells all the books to the judge, um, and also the lawyer is uh courting the judge's daughter in this like very chaste way because he's like a poor young lawyer and he can't afford to marry this woman but he really wants to but he can't do anything you know untoward in the meantime um anyway as the judge reads more and more of this mad scientist books like his like personality changes <laughs> uh and he forces judge- his daughter <laughs> yeah, the judge's personality changes. He quits his job and he forces his daughter to move with him to the countryside so he can spend more time uh, with the books. Uh, TLDR, um, the uh, uh, Arab had like cu- transferred his consciousness it's into the judge's body. But what what uh, I think the interesting piece of this is he had can. Uh, this mad scientist had figured out a way to like split people into multiple bodies. So you get to see uh, like two different versions of the corpse of the daughter of the judge, but the daughter of the judge is ultimately okay. There's a happy ending. They're able to like use this guy's like ancient books to cast his soul out of the judge's <laughs> body. And then they burn down the house that all the books are in. Oh, cool. I bet once again, you said it better than it read. <laughs> yeah, I'm almost certain that's the case. Yeah. Oh, and like there, oh, the, the the romance in that story is just like even more like like chased and tortured than the romance in um, uh, Creatures of the Light. It's just like, um, you know, uh, this lawyer who's been like writing letters back and forth with this woman for months and like they were courting for a long time before this. He gets to uh, the house in the countryside and like, you know, the daughter is on the porch and like, you know, she like 
kisses him and he's like it was the first kiss i've ever experienced in my life or something like that uh and it turned out that one was was one of the daughter clones who like was immoral so that's why she was so forward and kissed him um but uh yeah i mean there's a there's a the moralism in these stories is really strong though i think like if we go to the the creatures of the light again you have all the so what's great about these like super science people is they don't have to sleep, right? So they right. can like work almost. They don't have hours houses. This is actually they don't this have is houses. This is this is actually have... an argument I made with Luke, and he wouldn't he wouldn't have any of it. I said, you know, what's wrong with that book by uh, uh, Beggars in Spain by what's her name? Nancy Cress. Nancy Cress, right? Uh, it, it, it's like they 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 have beds. <laughs> They don't need to sleep, but they have beds. Is it for sex? Uh, I guess. But if if you have a lifestyle, I mean, our whole lifestyle, right? In the modern way, in the modern way, we're locked up in our houses. If you're homeless, that's basically the, sure are. the biggest strike against you as a as a level of society, right? But if everybody doesn't need to sleep, you basically you need a gym membership, right? To shower, you need a uh, a storage locker. You don't need a home because you can go recreate all day and all night. Um, it's just logical. She's actually more logical than than uh, that Sophie Wenzel Ellis is more logical in in, in this respect than uh, a modern book or a relatively modern book uh, by Nancy Cress, and that's crazy. <laughs> um. Whatever. This is the first. This is the first time I've seen or come across super science. Is there some sort of definition for that? Oh, sure, I would guess. Uh, let's have a look. Super science. I was just thinking. Uh, is there Paul? Is there a super science role playing game? Because this would. This totally feels like a role playing game plot. They start off in a bar or a dance hall or whatever, and there's three three guys sort of looking at each other. <laughs> <laughs> One of them's got a hunchback. That's right. <laughs> the deck of destiny is shuffling. And then one of the, uh, the, the uh, one's testing the other by dropping his wallet. <laughs> like what? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it, it's, it sounds a little bit like Spirit of the Century. A little Spirit of the Century is more pulpy, but it's got that same sort of plotting. It's Spirit of the Century is actually kind of a fun role playing game if you because you can yeah you know, can just turn out turn off the old all the racism and eugenics crap and just go for the fun but it's got that like pulpy like super weird science pulp action 1930s okay guys got a death ray we got to get out dirigible and fly the planes to stop them mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. wackiness it's, but but uh, also ee e. doc smith if you guys have ever read an ee e. doc smith yes yeah, I've heard Children of the Lens and that's basically yeah, it's it's yeah. the way Star Trek works. You know, they so they in, they encounter the Borg, right? And they start uh, shooting at the Borg, and the, it damages the Borg ship or the Borg person. And then the next one comes, and they've adapted, right? They and so adapted. now the crew has to invert the phaser array or whatever, and they just keep adapting. You know, back and forth, and it's only human ingenuity that prevent. Like that part of Star Trek: Next Generation, um, it, it was the techno babble heavy stuff. You know, mm-hmm. when they're not heavy on ideas, but maybe they're going to hopefully get to an idea. That part of the show, that's super science. I'm trying to find a definition. Uh, I have a, oh, I have I, an idiosyncratic definition sure. that might not match the uh, like the, what the critical canon says, mm-hmm. but. Uh, 
here's what I think that this story shares with similar stories, um, both like in like, you know, uh, prose science fiction, but also into the comic books and not just superhero comic books, but we do get into the superhero comic books with this stuff. And it's, um, uh, you know, uh, science is essentially, uh, is our, uh, part of our modern mythology mm-hmm. right like our ideas about science have like little to do with science uh in and of itself right like it's not really about the scientific method but we have this idea of um like this mythological figure of the scientist and the mythological power of science and uh through science uh you know we reach towards like fantastic and like godlike mm-hmm. um things um my uh you know I hesitate to say i have a favorite superhero but maybe my favorite superhero is the flash and like the whole premise of that is um you know uh through a scientific accident a man essentially becomes uh, mercury right like mm-hmm. he's uh he can run 10 times the speed of light. Uh, he can like <laughs> sort of trip and like, he can get sort of trip and end up in the future. He can trip and end up in the past. Um, and, uh, it's sort of like what his role is in the world as the flash, uh, is basically a mythological role. Um, I mean here it's just it's sort basically of, magic with science as the explanation, but, mm-hmm. but it's bigger than that, right? Yeah, it's, it is. It, it's about yeah, it's super, it, it's the, yeah, and there's an ideological component of it too. Like uh Evan was talking about like the uh teleological evolution in this story and I think that is basically a characteristic of like most super science stories is mm. something like uh this uh strong ideological notion of progress from lower states to higher states mm. uh using uh scientific power. Let me let me yeah. give you two more definitions, Misa. Um, This is from the uh, GURPS uh, wiki. You know GURPS, the generic universal role-playing system? Role-playing system, yes. Something like that. Uh, Super science technologies violate physical laws, relativity, conservation of energy, etc., as we currently understand them. By definition, it is impossible to set a firm... Uh, TL, what is TL? For super science, we might discover... Uh, uh, so that's tech level. That's tech that's, level, that's okay. A group, that's, that's a there you go. term. We might discover faster than light travel tomorrow, a thousand years from now, or never. Equipment TLs are always debatable, but super science TLs are arbitrary. Okay, I'm going to skip out of this one and go to the much more definitive answer, which we get <laughs> from the wiki for super friends. <laughs> <laughs> super friends super friends wiki super science <laughs> is a term that refers to any type of science that is considered beyond that of the normal mainstream science and as an example the raven was a super scientist but his experiments were considered unethical uh, uh, you know basically you know kryptonite uh having the effect of it as as it does on superman and red kryptonite having another effect i i i, I, I and gold kryptonite. Yeah, and, yeah, every kind of kryptonite having a weirder effect. And the explanation for why Superman has his superpowers is because he lives under a yellow sun. This is very life ray sort of stuff, isn't it? It is. It's very, very much so. I remember, I think it was a Super Friends episode where the villain tries to destroy the Super Friends. And what he does for Superman is as Superman's capsules hang towards Earth. He di- he. He redirects it to a planet with a red sun, so Superman never becomes Superman. It was really brilliant at the time. It's like, <laughs> damn, that would work. 
<laughs> That's a great episode, actually. Um, I, I've watched that in the past couple of years. Uh, um, yeah, they uh, they try to erase the Super Friends from the timeline before they become the Super Friends, yeah. but uh, obviously it doesn't work. Um, uh, Is that the, not uh, the story of Boys did from Brazil? Did the do that recently in their movie? It's Say again, Evan? Try to uh, Teen Titans tried to erase, maybe not the Super Friends, but a bunch of superheroes. That sounds right. Um, in their movie, the, uh, the recent... What's the Boys from Brazil connection you're you're thinking of, Lisa? They, they, wasn't it that they uh, wanted... Maybe I got it wrong, but um, I they bred a whole bunch of... Yeah, um, that's eugenics. Uh, yeah, no, yeah, phones, sorry. They, they didn't try and go before time. Sorry, I no, got it but it, No, it's it's the yeah. same sort of... <laughs> I mean, that's the thing, right, is that Nazis are a combination of throwbacks to medievalism and actually even... I was, I was listening to a great... Uh, pod, you know, if you guys don't listen to the uh, In Our Time podcast, uh, that's the BBC show with Melvin Bragg where... He oh yeah, 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 of, yeah. Yeah, I was just listening to one called uh, "Battle of the Tudorberg 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 Forest." Right. Forest. Yes, they, yes. Virus, give me back my legions. Right. Battle. And they had a question as to whether he wanted the legions back or he wanted the eagles back. But in any case, it's basically German Germans defeating some uh, some Romans, and the way that the Romans def- defined or a particular Roman defined the Germans, had incredible consequences like 2,000 years later because the way the Romans are writing about the Germans, they are these people. They're not like these other people, those, those Celts across the border. They're not, they're not you know, uh, France, Franks. They're not, they're their own people. And, and that sort of definition this is hitler's shitty logic is he's reaching back to this period and saying see that what the romans are saying about us that's us and anything that doesn't conform to this actually broken and an incorrect idea about what the the germans were like which is basically it was a moral screed against romans by a roman by saying uh, you know, these noble savages out here, uh, right? And the thing is, yeah. is, if you understand German psychology of the 20th century after after uh, the Nazis, they were still really into native people of North America as uh, noble savages. Like, you, you, you still see them. Germans come here, you yeah. hiking on a mountain up in, you know, British Columbia or Alberta. And what if you, if you you know, toss a coin, the chances are 50-50 that there'll be a, a couple of Germans. And the reason is they have these romantic stories about, you know, what it was like to be a pure, you know, brawny, savage person. Uh, in this case, blue-eyed and yellow-haired or whatever. And we have that in this story. And it's mm-hmm. just total bullshit. <laughs> like, it, it has nothing to do with what the actual history was there. I mean, it rhymes with some of the stuff, but you know, if you uh, uh, adopt a single phrase as your, your motto, stuff is going to go wrong, right? 
it just stuff is going to go wrong because it does not does not encompass nuance in a way. And and when they try to encompass, you know, they start coming up with explanations for what Aryans are. Oh, Hitler's of the particular type of Aryan that doesn't have blonde hair. It's okay. He's got the blue eyes, which is important. His big muscly arms that doesn't matter because he's got the will. Right, <laughs> and that that whole classification system, this complete bullshit, that's in this story too. It's Everybody's just, got blue eyes here. Uh, yeah, well, it's very important because yeah. that 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 tells it. And so even the the uh, scientist with a hunchback, that's sort of novel and cute, and and that's why you know nobody's going around yelling at Sophie Wenzel Ellis for being a racist because her story's not popular, right? Not compared to Lovecraft's. Oh yeah, she would get destroyed if like she was somebody that like people like used as a touchstone a lot. Like, totally, people would be very critical of her. Although um, she did, she did get recent publication in you know womanthology, right? So basically, people go back into the you know they are looking for a collection anthology idea, and they say, well, how about a collection of forgotten women science fiction writers? And they and go like, and are look. they forgotten? Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, they are. I mean, most you know nobody nobody hears spends their days thinking about how many Sophie Wenzel Ellis books they have on their shelf, right? Uh, but oh, well, That's because I can get them on your website, man. Like, <laughs> yeah, but I got I mean, like I 40 Lovecraft books behind me. I don't have any Sophie Wenzel Ellis books, you know? So that, that's part of it. But the important part is that it, this is cute and fun and we can appreciate it, but ultimately it's, it's, uh, it's, it's wrong about everything. <laughs> like literally I don't think she made a correct move in any any scene. Um and yet it's still amusing and enjoyable. Yeah, but cuz it's even at the beginning. So I mean, the whole point is the our scientist drops the wallet so I hear we'll find it and bring it to him. And because he even says, "Well, if you just mailed it to me, I know you wouldn't be the right man." Like Right. What? Yeah. What, I mean, so he didn't mail it to you, but to a person that means he's the right guy that you're looking for. How does that even It means work? he's a dilettante who doesn't have a job. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, that's because he has good genes. That's like, correct. Like, how do you think you get to be a, a rich right. dilettante without I, a job? You I, have I, to have I, good genes. That's correct. Yeah, he's, like, he's, he's like Flash Gordon. You're like, Flash Gordon before he goes, goes to Mongo because he's just like a – a playboy polo players type sort of person. Uh, oh, and, and yes, and his and his and his and his poor fiance. What about Mary? Poor Mary gets discarded. What? It's like she's I not mean, important. That, uh, you just need to know he's heterosexual. That's the important. She's thing. not beautiful. We don't care. She, she's supposed to be brilliant, but she's not beautiful. And so, I mean, I, I, but gazing at the picture of of of, of uh, our heroine, he. Could not remember how his fiance looked. Like poor Mary Burns gets short shrift in this story. It's like um, I, I, yeah. I got two. I got two comments on Mary Burns. Um, one is just a serendipity thing. Um, Mary Burns was the name of Friedrich Engels' common law wife. <laughs> what? Uh, who was a factory worker? Wow. Um, That's uh, funny. Who, yeah, like uh, uh, Mary Burns was a person who worked for Friedrich Engels' dad, uh, and they like. Uh, was the person who made his introductions to all the working men's associations in London. So is sort of the silent co-author of um, uh, on the conditions of the English working class. Yeah. Uh, but the uh, the other piece is, uh, um, you know, like what's going on with uh, uh, 
Sophie Wenzel Ellis like psychologically here? Is there like, Dude. uh, you know, like, like you hate it's it's a bad habit and also unavoidable to psychoanalyze authors when they Dude, like make it's so obvious. and their stories. <laughs> uh, I love I like, love the psycho the psychoanalysis is so fun because the more you read of an author, the more you can see like Lovecraft really had this thing where he wasn't interested in sex, and you can tell because he don't like to talk about it as a subject. It's not the subject. What is Sophie Wenzel Ellis interested in? Girl stuff. Well, you know, like, is he a right match for me? And more importantly, what is this man, this handsome, handsome man? Let's spend some time looking at this man. Look at how handsome this man is. <laughs> and she's she's married when she's writing all of these stories too. Uh-huh. Yeah, Ellis is her married name. Her, her yeah, yeah, she's like a name. she's like a middle class housewife, as I understand it. But you know what? All, all the all the negative things I'm saying about her writing style, I think she would be totally fun to hang out with. Given how her, I mean, uh, you know, we'd have to disabuse her of her her eugenics beliefs, right? Which is hard. I like her writing style. I just think she's ideologically deranged. Like, she is that. Uh, she, uh, she's ideologically deranged, but almost everybody was then. It's very, it, and that's the real truth, right? It's, it's basically you. You have to be a really strange person. Like even even H.G. Wells doesn't get everything right, but he's he's pretty damn close. Like as, in terms of like. Not, I'm not saying person, you know, his lifestyle, but in his thinking about how, like, think about the country of the blind. You know, you all know that story. Oh yeah, that's a great story, right? Mm-mm. Oh, it's a I don't great know. story, Micey. You got to check it out. So there's he actually rewrote it once, I think, and made it. I think he made it a harsher ending. In any case, it's there's it's a kind of a super science story in that they travel to. Oh no, it's a lost world story, right? So. Some guy is hiking, I don't know, in the Andes, and he falls down a mountainside, and he's, uh, he's an asshole. Uh, almost every Lovecraft protagonist, total asshole. <laughs> and that, yeah, that's... Just, that Lovecraft that or H.G. Wells? Uh, oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I said Lovecraft. I meant H.G. Wells. You said, yeah. you, you, you said Lovecraft, yep. No, yeah, most well, H.G. it's probably Wells true for Lovecraft, too, but it, it, they're different kinds of assholes. Uh, they're, they're polite assholes, <laughs> whereas H.G. Wells' assholes are like they're whipping people and shooting people. Uh, I just read a, a Pornus Island, which um, basically it's a it's actually kind of a funny story. It's about a guy off the coast of Madagascar who's collecting a Pornus eggs, which are basically giant ostriches that are extinct. Last one was probably around a thousand years ago. Anyways, he finds one. Uh, he b- finds a bunch of them. Um, and one of the natives uh, uh, gets bit by uh, multipede or whatever ah, centipede millipede, 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 millipede so, I don't yeah. know something that's bad and you know can hurt you. Um, and he drops one of these eggs that they found because uh, they're going to sell them to a museum. Um, and so he whips him, <laughs> right? And then oh, they uh, they they actually beat him pretty close to death. It sounds like um, so they the two native guys flee. Uh, the island, and he's like, well, that's my ride, right? So he shoots one of them, and then he shoots the other one. And then the rest of the story is him explaining how he survived. Um, And three of the eggs uh, are left, and one of them, uh, he he, uh, was broken. Another one, he eats, (laughs) and the egg inside was like, it was still developing, because it was preserved in this bog, peat bog or whatever. And then finally, uh, one of them hatches 
and this Apornis comes out and it ad, uh, adopts onto him. I'm sort of explaining the whole story here. It you know it, <laughs> it follows him as its mother or whatever, right? And then as it, I, I, I'm starting to take on Will's mannerisms, and it's really making me. <laughs> I like it. Anyways, um, he he uh, he raises this this Apornis by catching food for it and then when it grows to adulthood it starts like treating him badly and attacking him and uh he ends up uh like with a big scar on his face which we find out that that's the main character because he has a scar on the face at the beginning of the story and uh then he kills it (laughs) and uh the bones uh rot and uh, those are the bones in the museum that we've been seeing at the beginning of the story and so like this total asshole character um, runs it. Anyways, that's not the story I was going to explain. The story I was going to explain is called uh, The Country of the Blind. Maybe Evan can explain it better. You you read that, Evan? I read it, but oh, it's, been a uh, bit of, it's been a while. Okay, well, I'll, I'll do it then. That's the one where the, the, the explorers go to this lost world. Yes, it, in the Andes. A society of blind people. Right. And think they can dominate them, blind. but then they end up being def- like the blind people one-up them, right? Yeah, there's only one guy, um, or one guy survives, it. and he yeah. he says, uh, you know, that old dictum in the country of the blind, the one and my, the man with one eye is king, right? Um, so he thinks I'm going to be the king of these people. Finds a sexy blind lady, he's going to make her the wife or whatever, and she's like, that's fine, but um, you you're acting really strange, and you got to stop talking about these hallucinations that you have about how. You can perceive things with your your uh, sight, which is not a thing, because <laughs> they don't. They're they've been congenitally blind for hundreds of years, you know, mm-hmm. um, and they have all sorts of systems that make it perfectly plausible that they can live blind. Um, but he insists that he he has a superpower they don't have, and his oh. actions cause the group to basically say. What you're doing is unacceptable. We th- we think that the problem is caused by these two uh, growths in the front of your face um, that are extraordinarily hot and shouldn't be there. So we're going to remove them, and then you'll be fine. We think that that's the best solution for you. So he ends up yeah. having his eyes removed. Mm. Um, and the, the point of that story is uh, <laughs> it, it's it's that you think a particular genetic... Um, thing is good for you, you're making a mistake. That's what, L- uh, I, well, I think that's one of the points of that story, other than, you know, hubris and stuff. But it's a scientific story. It doesn't normally get thought of as that way because, there, you know, sickle cell anemia is a real thing, right? But, and you might say that that's a eugenic uh, thing we could fix, but it provides immunity when you don't have both of the genes. Uh, the recessive genes to uh, a terrible plague that is throughout Africa, right? Or central mm-hmm. Africa, which, you know, is uh, malaria, Mal- right? Malaria. Um, yeah. So uh, saying one thing is a genetically superior is just a fucking mistake, right? It's just a mistake. You can't know until you say, well, look, Huntington's seems to be bad, Right. Um, it seems to kill the people who have it. Well, that's a bad thing, we say. But it's possible there's other things that are worse than Huntington's that are staved off by Huntington's. And if you do the studies long enough, you'll sort of find examples of why genetic 
uh, quote unquote flaws are in the genes over time. And Sophie Wenzel Ellis, this is way too sophisticated for her, <laughs> right? That's not what she's doing here. She's saying, I've got a teleological story that actually, if you think about it at all for like, I don't know, a few minutes, doesn't actually make sense, but that's the, that's what we're going with. So here we go. <laughs> yeah, but I, this is one well, thing that like everyone sort of got wrong. In yeah, that yeah, time. yeah, yeah. Even if you, if you set aside the, the, the biological stuff, you know, mm-hmm. and the reading of Darwin as survival of the fittest. Mm-hmm. You have that, the, like the social theorists at the time were also kind of yeah. saying, what's the ideal social state? Darwinism what's the ideal social organization or whatever? Mm-hmm. And it all had that kind of teleological aspect to it. Which is absolutely, it's, it, it's like one day we're all going to go to heaven and earth will be perfected in utopia. That's all bullshit. That's not the way we're that, set up or what we're doing. There's no, there's no path that we're on that is going towards a destiny. And if you start looking at what she's actually doing in the story, like logically, you can say, well, wait a second. If you have a life ray that can just restore life, then you actually don't need breeding, right? You, you can have immortals. That's just how it is. It, 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 it mm-hmm. just in that step, the first step that she has saying, you know, they don't have houses, that actually is the most brilliant step that she has in this book. But I, I, I confronted this really raw in in the raw in i in university i went i went to university for 16 years guys i like to say <laughs> this because it's a fascinating fact uh, one of the classes i took was a women's studies class and the reason i took it is not because i was obsessed with women's studies but more more importantly it was a science fiction class um and i was really into science fiction and also i was taking basically everything um over 16 years you can do that uh, so i took a women's studies class and uh, we read science fiction books, which is awesome, right? And then we had a debate in class about why why uh, certain things in Frankenstein and uh, we were talking about cloning. I don't know. It was some book. Uh, but in, uh, we had uh, one in Frankenstein. Sweet, where late the sweet bird sang. You know, it might have uh, been. I can't remember. It was a long Kate time Wilhelm. ago. Yeah, yeah, it might have been a Kate Wilhelm. Uh, Wilhelm. Yeah. Um, in any case, uh, she's a queen, by the way. I had like I love her. <laughs> I, I I don't remember the book at all. Um, I, I we also read Doomsday Book, which is uh, a horribly long book, but it's okay. Anyways, um, she uh, the the teacher was the only one who basically stopped me from being uh, assaulted. <laughs> in class and the reason i was explaining to them that that the cloning doesn't make any sense on a large scale because of plagues right genetic diverse like they they, the people in the class didn't understand the reason for genetic diversity they said no if you have a clone army that's hitler and hitler is the reason we need to not have clones therefore we should ban it was basically on on what you know what is ethical in scientific uh i don't know experiments regarding human embryos and that sort of thing like cloning is not going to be an issue ever you know the clone wars doesn't make any sense all you need to do is find one guy you capture him and you see what kills him and that'll kill all of them right that's Uh, just exactly how it works and the monocultures are terrible i was getting like so much heat for this the teacher had to step in and say no jesse's right 
And it's like, yeah, that's what genetic diversity is for, right? It prevents massive plagues within a group of things. So, like, cloning is an interesting phenomena, and it's used in plots and stuff. Uh, but it's not, uh, you know, even, you know, we get this problem with bananas. Right? <laughs> We're yeah. always hearing about We're the bananas are going to die off. And they have died off in the past, but... We'll just get another subspecies that was cloned and, you know, it, and then something will come and we'll have to spray it and then blah, blah, blah. The pattern repeats, right? Sexual uh, selection is about ch- diversity. And so this story fundamentally, fundamentally misunderstands that. And that's why it's stupid. <laughs> but it's fun. <laughs> so, uh, sorry about that little rant. <laughs> No, 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 no. It's because, because just as a side note for a real thing here, one of the reasons why we're having problems with emerald ash borers is because we have so many ash trees that are all planted and all have the, basically the same makeup and all so close yeah. together. The ash borer is just smashing through Minnesota and mm. decimating the entire forest. It's like, yeah, yeah anytime you have actually uh, works, guys. Yeah, if you have mm. a, a forest uh, that is, you know, a tree planted forest for harvesting. Um, it just increases the chances of, you know, uh, a wipeout and it increases forest fires, right? That, you kind of don't want to fuck with the monoculture thing. You don't want to go that way because it just fucks you up, right? It, 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 it seems to offer things in the, in the short run, but it hurts you in the long run, always. Yes, always. Well, economically, yeah. too, not just... Hey, like you're right. You're crop. right there, Evan. I had right. the hardest time trying to explain this to my geography students just a couple weeks ago. Well, I mean, uh, that, this is the perfect yeah. example, right? Job. People, people. Well, even like productive, right? So, people yeah. in the states are all upset about how there's no ventilators. Uh, almost all, uh, you know, all the important things that used to be manufactured medically in the United States are now manufactured in China, and China's in lockdown problem right mm-hmm. uh, or in british columbia to bring it back to a place i know very well we have something called agricultural land reserve i probably mentioned it on the podcast previously um this is you know because of the geography of british columbia and the high density of people in the places like where i live it's very hard to uh find farmland that won't get you know condos all over it so we have to put land in a land reserve and say this is only for farming. Now, even if there's not people farming on it right now, when they shut down the border or there's a massive plague or a revolution going on in the United States, where's all our crops going to come from? We're going to starve to death. That's just a fact, right? So you have to have an agricultural land reserve or you're stupid. You are setting yourself up for a massive die-off. Or, 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 or the job I work for. We man- we manufacture a product that is primarily for a particular segment of the trucking industry, and we've been for years trying to diversify because if that segment, when that segment has problems, our mm-hmm. company has problems, mm-hmm. and we'd like to have a better diversity of customers so that we're not riding that wave up and down. Right. And right. so yeah, so it so it's it, it's it's in my daily job. We're trying to we're trying to solve that diversity problem. So. The company's nice and strong. It, it, the The thing is, is stuff is complex, and complex systems are hard to explain. <laughs> it's easier mm-hmm. just to say there's an evolutionary ladder, and we're on our way to the top, 
right? It's a it, it, it's a bush, not a ladder. And we're all at the yeah. bush is, oh, every species at the far end of one of those. And bushes. some of that bush is on fire. Yeah. Part of that bush is on fire. <laughs> Part of it is being eaten. And by... some of it's dead. Yeah, yep. some of it's yeah. being eaten. That's the way it works. And the seed pods that are flying off of that things uh, aren't. That was la- that was la- that was last week. Oh, hey, <laughs> you're right. Yes. Again. <laughs> now, I, I, I want to recommend an uh, alternative mm-hmm. people are thinking of reading this story. Something we've already, <laughs> oh, they've talked already about read this it. Podcast. Uh-huh. Something we've already talked about in this podcast that, although also dealing with eugenics, dealing mm-hmm. with uh, race stuff, does this a little bit better and I think has a better, like actually deals with some of the diversity stuff a little bit better. And that would be Milo Hastings, City of Eternal Night. A very interesting story. Yep. So yep. I recommend that book instead of the short story. Hey, my I think you'll like that book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's still in that eugenical worldview, but they actually acknowledge, like in that world, which is set like in a, basically Berlin becomes the last holdout of German civilization. <laughs> underground living Berlin. Underground. Yes. Yeah. And it's a totally eugenical society. It's published in 1920, 10 years before the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but kind of diversity. It's a super science story, kind of. They have some super scientific stuff, sort of. Right? They do. But I, I, like, even granting that eugenics is nonsense, they, Milo Hastings does eugenics better Mm in that story. Yeah, well, he's, because he has experience with animal breeding, right? Mm. Yeah, I, I think that. Yeah. So, Misa, that's the book that uh, you got thrown off of um, by all the Nazi stuff in the beginning. I yeah. Think. But um, <laughs> it, it's also a novel, which makes it harder uh, to read. Uh, but what I liked, about, what I liked about the idea of this one, uh, I, I, again, it's all coincidence and fortuitousness. But uh, yeah, we're in the middle of a pandemic and plague, and everybody's going to die. So let's read a stupid story. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of fun, <laughs> and that's I think what we got. Right? I, I enjoyed it. <laughs> stupid, but I enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I, I my closing comment on uh, uh, on creatures of the light is like so. It's really easy to go in and like take apart the science, like not just in this story, but in any story you could classify as super science mm-hmm. or like. Uh, it's like, so obviously it makes no sense that like Superman becomes like a godlike being because the yellow radiation from the sun, right. like is stronger than so, the radiation. Yeah. It allows him to sun. have big muscles. I get it. But how come he can fly? <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, that doesn't, doesn't follow. It, it, yeah. Well, but if you, but if you're, if you're really strong, that, you're kind because of, because your it's brain not the, is so big now. <laughs> All right. Okay. <laughs> well, it's the it's not the right critique of the story. I right, think right. is taking apart the science in these stories, um, or it's not the most fruitful critique because what's going on in this story isn't primarily scientific. Um, it's uh, I think it's like a combination of like we have a lot of like fortuitous gags and like interesting concepts that are like neat to read, mm-hmm. and then also it's like. Uh, there's an ideological aspect of the story. Those are the two main things going on. I think it would be really um, good to read on the on the train on your way to work in in 1930. Yeah, but, yeah. but it might yeah. give you a distorted. It might reinforce your your eugenics ideas by saying this is real stuff. Look, this is a science comic or a science uh, magazine. Right? <laughs> uh, it's not challenging you in the way that I think it should. But now that it's so silly, it's harmless. 
That's what. That's the way I look at it. Mostly harmless. Oh, totally. And uh, you know, <laughs> Superman is—he's so far away from eugenics. Like, it's right in his name, right? The Ubermensch and all that stuff. But n- nobody thinks of Superman as being, you know, about racism. Well, because he's an alien. Because he's an alien. If the, if there's racism, then it's then Superman's story becomes a story of immigration and. If, and he's and, always the uh, champion of 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 people right. low, lower down on the totem pole. Right, right. I mean, and like Superman, Red Sun makes an explicit about making making him a communist. So yeah. Mm. See, that's the one I want to read because that that one might be interesting. It's a, it's a Mark Miller story. I don't know if you would love it, but oh, okay. um, yeah, true. Fair. It, it has a great super science ending. Um, the uh, yeah, yeah. I guess I just uh, um, I don't know. I think I would defend uh, Sophie Wenzel Ellis as like uh like a writer of a particular kind of fiction. Um, the, uh, I also do think that the story undermines itself ideologically uh, in order to like work as a story. Uh, because on the one hand, like uh, we're never given any information that indicates that the, the scientists involved have rethought uh, their basic theory that, um, you know, uh, man was man when he came out of the primordial ooze because he was like inching himself towards godhood. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, like I mean, that's uh, you know the reason we have religion is because like we like understand in our DNA that we're meant to be gods. Mm-hmm. Um, like that's uh, you know that's never we're never like supposed to rethink that. But then there's like an aspect of the story where it's like, well, the gods that this guy was able to create based on this idea were like horrible people who like needed to be destroyed like mm. uh we didn't have to uh compromise our protagonists because the evil people were able to destroy themselves um like there wasn't like a conflict where uh you know the people in the story actually were uh, active um the protagonist of the story is just totally passive watching these gods destroy themselves that's a that's uh, sort of a common theme in the in the astoundings you you ha- you have a viewpoint character right even in other stories in that issue you have a viewpoint character who is witness to the astounding science right and that's sort yeah. of the medium through which we are experiencing it what's that uh gerard the french guy who's is the uh triangular desire what am i talking about what I'm talking about. So when you're watching a, uh, an ad and some lady is licking an ice cream cone or licking ice cream on an ice cream cone and a guy's yeah. looking at her, looking at that, or that, that great meme where there's a guy walking with his girlfriend and he looks back and it makes the, ooh, sweet ass uh, sort of. Yeah. And then <laughs> hey, people hey, place she's it. looking like, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> I, I just realized this is the, this is the story of, of the first Star Trek um, uh, where no man has gone before. No, no, huh? where, where no. no man has gone before. Yeah, we, is that the title of it? Yeah, the, yeah, where, where they cross the barrier and the and and Kirk's friend gets the superpowers and they go to the planet and yeah. <clears throat> yes, you're absolutely you're absolutely the 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 second pilot, not the cage. Yeah, the no, pilot. the second one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Wait, wait, which one is that? That that's that's the one with. Uh, uh, Gary, Gary, Gary Lockman or Lockhart or something. Okay. And uh, the woman, Sally, Sally Kellerman. Is that the Salt episode? 
Huh? No, 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 not oh. the salt. Ep- not the salt episode. Um, Gary Mitchell. Gary. Gary Mitchell. Gary Mitchell and uh, Doctor. Doctor Denner. Right. And what are they doing on this well, planet? Well, no, well, because no, they're on the sh- they're on the ship with the, with the, with the, with Kirk and everyone else. They go through the time barrier outside the galaxy, and they too develop oh. superpowers to become the next. Uh, right. Well, they become gods, and then they want to right. destroy the sh- right. Right. Again, Classic. very Classic. super super sciencey stupid. Right. Yep. That was one of the worst episodes. Yeah, <laughs> but story, sir. <laughs> Yeah, but what does it? But like, what does it mean? You know, like that's I guess what I'm interested in is uh, like, you, what's the? You know, what's interesting though. They keep on it, like it's all about this is inevitable. We will go here, but we have to go here in time. You cannot rush it, otherwise, otherwise you get monsters. But oh, right. But if if you don't rush it, we will be here. Oh, right. And that reminds me of Babylon Five, and in the first season of Babylon Five, there's a there's a sci- there's a psy guy that winds up getting supercharged and getting oh, yeah. and, 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 and getting and becomes the next stage in evolution and all that stuff and then it's mm. implied that's what the humans are going to be in a million years and and because he even says at the end he says I'll see you again in a million years and he goes off but since the again not one of the best episodes no, no, of no, and, and, and and since they got rid of the 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 psionic that was attached to him, that whole plot line just went down the tubes because they replaced mm-hmm. they replaced her with uh, the other psionic who winds up getting supercharged by Vorlons instead. So they so so instead of going for that evolution <laughs> to the future, they just go for getting supercharged by aliens instead as the plot line. Yep. But there's That's another Star Trek episode you're all forgetting, mm-hmm. which, which one is, is forgetting? Voyager. When oh, Paris goes to like super warp, right? The lizard one, and it becomes a lizard. No, the no, that's terrible. I, did, did they officially retcon that as to never have happened? They, I, 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 maybe, 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 I don't know. It's maybe, still warp technology the, is still on Netflix. Uh-huh, there you go. Yeah, it's still on Netflix. So I think I, the episode I, is still I, I, canon. I Retconned it so that was actually not a canonical episode, but that might be just be a you know that might just be like an urban. You're just blocking it up, Paul. Well, well, it was a terrible episode. (laughs) There's a lot of terrible episodes of. Yes, but that was particularly bad. Uh, Like I wish I could like retcon like for my life as being non-canonical, like. Like, mm-hmm. uh, oh, this conversation with my mother never happened. Like, I just, <laughs> I we, well, like we can reference it, but it just like, you know, it, it's uh, we can't really consider it part of the canon. There was, uh, a, uh, there was a great clip of uh, uh, who's who's the uh, Kirby enthusiasm guy? Um, that guy, David. All, all, all no. of Twitter. David? <laughs> No, no, Larry David. Yeah, Larry, Larry David. David. So Larry uh, David. Uh, I thought about... you said Kirby enthusiasm. No, 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 <laughs> that's a different thing. Um, Larry David apparently, when he was writer on Saturday Night Live, he got into a uh, big beef with the guy who runs it. I can't remember his name. Canadian Lauren, guy. Lauren Green or yeah. Green Lauren somebody. Whatever his name is. Yeah. Anyways, he uh, he got into a big beef with him, saying, you know, you're not running any of my my. Uh, pieces you know none of my bits are getting air and he says that's it i quit and he just like leaves and then he's on his way home and he's like oh shit i think i shouldn't have done that and then he talks to some friend of his on the phone and says 
Well, um, how did how did it go exactly? And explains. He says, "Did you actually say the words I quit?" He says, "Yeah." And then he said, uh, "He says, well, why don't you just pretend it never happened?" <laughs> and so he shows up <laughs> to the next meeting, and they're all pitching their ideas, and he go around the table and he just pitches his next idea like it never happened, and then they turn that into an episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> <laughs> where George Costanza quits his job <laughs> you know big blowout everybody hears and then he just pretends like he still works there and <laughs> still getting his paycheck because no, the paperwork never actually he never actually you know did the paperwork <laughs> <laughs> just pretend it never happened you never had that conversation with your mom never. I mean that's gaslighting, so don't do that. But <laughs> no, that's terrible. No, we can't. We, we're, yeah, we're, we're not going. In to a way, I almost. Wa- I do want to defend this really horrible Star Trek episode because it, at least it takes the teleological evolution mm-hmm. kind of bit, uh, it, and it takes it's back. like it's not necessarily you're not going to be a god. You're going to be, you know, our well. That's more there's another and realistic really about where our evolutionarily our evolutionary destiny may be. There's another really annoying novel that does that too. I, I, I'm basically annoyed by everything. I know Mice is a big fan, but uh, what's the novel by uh, the author of Slaughterhouse Five where everybody evolves into basically a a sea a sea lion? Is that Galapagos? Gal- Galapagos. Well, that's yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. Where they all everybody gets stupid and they just lie around on the beaches and it it, it kind of reminds me of. Uh, Margaret Atwood too. Oh, <laughs> just yeah, she, yeah, she's got a few which, novels where where we're just people... doesn't understand what yeah. what. Uh, so it's not that she's doing the uh, like Sophie Wenzel Ellis is doing. She's not doing eugenics, but that it's they just don't understand evolution doesn't work that way. And so like yeah, it's possible that humans would evolve into a bunch of sea lions flapping around on the beach. <laughs> Entirely possible. Uh, That's originally an Olaf Stapleton idea, but yeah, when Olaf Stapleton does it, it's cool because that's not the whole book. That's just like a paragraph or a line, and then the rest of the book is full of ideas, right? Yeah, no, but I mean, he came up with the the seal people on Venus is what we'll evolve into eventually. Um, Everything Olaf Stapleton does is good because he doesn't dwell on it in the way that. You know, people who take his bad ideas then write a whole novel about that one line. <laughs> well, so I still think seal people are a good idea, and we're just going to have to agree to disagree about that. But uh, I mean, you can say the same thing about Sophie Wenzel Ellis, though. She doesn't. She doesn't dwell on it, right? It's like no, she doesn't just, dwell. I, 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 this is we only just to push straight through. Yep, push straight through. Mm. It's a silly, silly book. <laughs> I have to say, Jesse, I completely defend everything that Kurt Von- not uh, Kurt Vonnegut. I mm. mean, there are some books of his that I don't love, but I love him a hundred percent. He's got a he's got the right attitude, um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't. I guess what I object to is basically it's the same thing I object to with Margaret Atwood. He's fatted in a way that I don't think is reasonable, like. Uh, you know, if if everybody said Ed Wood was the greatest filmmaker, I'd be, what's wrong with you people? <laughs> right. So when I watch an Ed Wood, Ed Wood movie, I'm like, this is hilarious and funny, 
but nobody says he's the greatest filmmaker. He's just really enthusiastic, right? And it's not it's not a fair comparison either because Margaret Atwood is competent in a way that uh, you know Edward is not, but uh, she's not she's not the greatest living writer the way she seems to want to be treated and is willing to. Ex- I don't know. Don't get me started on Margaret Atwood. Misa well, sent that's me how I feel about anyway. I, I, huh? I was defending Kurt Vonnegut. I know. I know. I, he I, you is know, dead, he, Jesse. He is dead. <laughs> well, we then, are, we we must are honor him. dead. Oh, wait. That's a different book. <laughs> we must <laughs> honor his memory by never talking about him again. <laughs> Amen. Uh, I like Kurt Vonnegut. I just haven't read very much by him. You will, and then you'll have it memorized. I uh, I wrote my college essay on Slaughterhouse Five, like oh. you know, ah. one day ago. Oh yeah, no doubt. Uh, you have you got your mark back yet? I guess not because of the plague. <laughs> oh no, my essay to get into college. So this oh, was okay. you know like day one I was born, day two I like is admitted to college, day three I you this know is for your PhD and. Yeah, and then so it's day four. I'm here now, having been educated for the past three days to talk right. to you all. Well, you're t- doing great. And and day six, I got displaced from time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I just I got obsessed with a uh, black age woman, and it just like I ran myself to my destruction <laughs> by uh, by denying partnership of the woman who was genetically bred for me. <laughs> <laughs> no, chosen, chosen. chosen. <laughs> by my uh, uh, by my humpbacked father uh, Jesse. Yeah. <laughs> oh, hey, don't talk about my humpback. <laughs> Why haven't you heard it, Jesse? I, I have to work on my German accent too. <laughs> I'm working uh, on getting humpback put on my back, so I'm less perfect. Yeah, I, that's right. Oh, wait, well, that, Harrison Bergeron. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking of. Like, yeah, like the, the artificial handicap. That's of, right. That's right. We're back to body again. I think we better stop Jesse before just annoy Jesse. I used to think that that story was stupid. I still think it's got some issues, but it's it's becoming more relevant in some respects. Um, it was the idiocracy of its day. Yeah, sort of. I mean, marching morons is idiocracy, right? So that's well, even yeah. earlier. Right, but but, but marching morons didn't have the cultural zeitgeist and and wide open, just uh, people aware of it like Harrison Bergeron did or Idiocracy the movie. So. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio. That point, but I'm almost certain by the end of this, we'll all know somebody, multiple people have had it. Maybe somebody on this podcast. <laughs> uh, well, 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 I guess well, there's a bunch of asymptomatic people. Yeah, out we there. need tests. Like people don't don't. That's don't how I clear show. how many people. Maybe some of us do have it right that's, now. That's how I feel. Every uh, like I, I'm, I, I've been sort of semi sick for like weeks, 
right? You know, congestion. It, I, I never thought, oh, I've got, uh, I've got allergies to springtime or anything like that. I just, I think, ugh, I'm not feeling a thousand percent, or my throat hurts a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the but, scratch throat that won't go away. <laughs> I was like, am I, is my is my breathing getting bad? I, I, <laughs> and I'm not normally a uh, person who does that, but for some reason, the it's infiltrated into my brain or I actually have uh, some sort of asymptomatic uh, stuff. So whatevs we'll be all right. Uh, So that's one news, one bit of news. Biden's a rapist. Number two, um, uh, Lawrence blocks got a new book out. uh, Just tweeted this morning. It's coming in a wait, June 24th. But I'm like I've read all his books pre- pretty much, um, and he's he's got he had a new burglar book out, but I'm not a, as big on the burglar series because it's like 24 books in or whatever. Um, but this one, it, it just tweeted an hour ago: an astonishing novel, a stunning and terminally unsettling work, oh. written in a style so accessible, so controlled, so utterly reasonable. This is a review by uh, Barry Molesberg, and I'm like, is Barry Molesberg even alive? Um, and I'm thinking, I don't think he is. Must be an old book. <laughs> Just the way you put that. I'm sorry. I well, I haven't heard anything from him lately, right? Um, but I was reading the review. Um, it's extended on, um, on, uh, it's just a link to the Kindle, um, on Amazon. And it's like, wow, that is, uh, that is hardcore. So I'm just read the whole review here for you. Listen to this. Um, this is an astonishing novel, the most profound examination and evisceration of identity which I have ever encountered in decades. Oh, which I have encountered in decades. A stunning and terminally unsettling work, written in a style so accessible, so controlled, so utterly reasonable, that the reader as witness can only fall and fall into the cauldron of memory, into some alteration, uh, neither ordained nor random, but uh, but a terrible fusion of both. And the thing is, is um, I, I don't know much about uh, Malzberg's reviewing and st- stuff, so it's kind of an interesting review. But I've read a lot of Lawrence Block, and he, he well, every once in a while he does write something like that, sort of like um, uh, challenging your identity as a, as a heterosexual <laughs> or challenge your ident- identity as whatever. Um, oh. It's, it looks like the rape and murder book here. We we did a podcast, right. you and me. Yeah, it was a hor- That was a devastating right. read. It was horrible. Powerful book, though. It, in terms of like how it made you feel as a yeah. reader. Yeah, very very powerful book. But um, the fact that it's getting so this, who is this person? You don't know Lawrence Block? Oh, he's so good. No, no, I've I, I've never heard of Lawrence Block. It's because uh... you were born yesterday in one of those light machines. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> your skin is is uh, your voice is like barely used before. Yeah, I have the gentle vocal cords of a baby, and I already have five descendants. And, and, should, 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 should we be saving this for the podcast? <laughs> and whenever he reads a book, he can memorize it and regurgitate it instantly. Yes, we should, Paul. You're right. Um, Lawrence Block is a very old. Uh, excellent writer. Um, he's kind of a twin for me with Donald Westlake. So if you read any Westlake, I believe you have. And he's the uh, spy in the elevator Donald guy. Donald Westlake. What's what's his uh, pen name? 
Uh, Richard Stark is his man. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I've read the first Parker novel. Right. Uh, which is the worst Parker novel, by the way. Just so you know. Oh, cool. Yeah, we did the second one as the first one on this podcast. Because it's, <laughs> it's a better book. I think Misa was on that I one, right? I think so, yeah. 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 Um, so uh, some guy named Tom Straw says, In my humble opinion, this could be Lawrence Block's best book. Uh, this is just on tweets. Joe Lansdale uh, just tweeted about it uh, in the same feed here. Uh, could could well be. It's wonderfully courageous, says Joe Lansdale. Joe Lansdale. Um, and uh, I asked Block when the audiobook was coming. I assumed that there was one. He says uh, Tantor is going to have it. And there's a link to how it was written and published. But I did not... Um, click on that yet because this is just so fresh and new but Lawrence Block is is one of my favorite writers just because his prose is amazing and he he's he's one of those weirdos like uh Rudyard Kipling or Robert A. Heinlein he just whatever he touches you want to read it you know Mark Twain kind of like that so I'm I'm smelling read along already uh not not, well, which which book are you talking about? This is a, a book Dead called Girl Dead Blues? Girl Blues. Yeah, terrible cover art, yeah. right? I mean, it's okay, but it's bad. <laughs> but the thing is, is this is a it looks like he's going directly around the publisher, uh, going straight to Amazon, um, and uh, Tantor, which is great. Although it's it's not as good for uh, the world as just giving it away. It's better than going elsewhere, I guess. Uh, right. So, um, those are my big pieces of news. Something about Lawrence Block and Biden's a rapist. (laughs) (laughs) Anybody else got any exciting news? Paul, do you have gaming today that we have to be worried about? No, that's good. Good. Okay. We got lots of time unless Evan's up at three o'clock in the morning and uh, has to go to bed. I don't have school. All right. Party all night. (laughs) Party on. That's right. A smart. That's great. And do it. Yeah, I, I don't think I have any students. We'll see. Uh, pretty, They've all been canceling on me as usual. But uh, we'll see. But um, Misa, what's going on in Misaville? Oh, it's pretty quiet here in Misaville. That's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's That's all, the way you want it. it. Everything is shut down. And when we see each other, we like fall down on our knees and go, oh, another human. And then get away! <laughs> Run away! <laughs> you, point at, you point at them and scream. Oh, God. Roll your eyes wait, back wait, into that your was, head. That was last week with Image of Body Snatchers. It feels like longer ago, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, my God. Was that only last week? It feels way longer ago. It was only last ago. week. It feels like it was a month ago. I know. It feels forever like ago, yeah. yeah. Every day is a month. Locked up it's at true. home. Okay. Uh, I have... Uh, a uh, couple of items related to Sophie Wenzel Harris. Uh, Ellis, why am I saying Harris? Um, uh, but I'm ready to start whenever you guys are, if you if you don't want to chat about what else is going on. Just, 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 oh. one, just, what, just one fun note. Uh, mm-hmm. Minnesota's now in a state of lockdown. That's But I don't get to work from home because my internet connection isn't good enough for yeah, me to I work from home. You said that a couple times on Twitter. What does that mean? Well, it's not good enough. Okay, because okay, so to do 
parts of my job, I need to connect through a VPN. And and that VPN is slow on my home internet connection, too slow to be functional. Well, why? So I can, so I can, is it a particular VPN? Yes, it's, it's, it's the VPN of, that work uses, yes. I see. And it's not a good it's not a it's not a fast VPN. And my inter- my home internet speed isn't tremendously fast. So yeah, it's like type hit a key, wait a second, and a character appears. Why do you have to use a VPN? I don't understand. Like you're not downloading no, 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 e- no, no, pirate ebooks. To connect, but to connect to us the server at work and access some uh, systems like Oracle. Okay. Wow. So you're going into the office? Really? Yes, I'm I'm, I'm going into the office because, yeah, because because we don't have a we don't have a over the Internet way to connect like Oracle and other other uh, stuff on our server. We have to do it through a VPN and that VPN is not the fastest thing ever created. How much longer do you think you're going to be allowed to do that? Um, I don't know. You just have to live at work. (laughs) Bring a bed. well, 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 the people who are working in our uh, our clients are having it even worse. They have to go to work. They have to make product because, right. yeah, they you, you can't build a clutch in your bedroom. So you know, yeah. so so I, I, I mean, I might have it bad, but lots of people in my company have it worse. So, especially the ones whose plant is being shut down in a year and a half. Although, who knows now how that's going to work with this with this virus screwing up everything. So. Mm. <laughs> Fun drama with my work life. Mm-hmm. Yay. That is, uh, that sucks. <laughs> sucks. Wenzel Harris. But I still have a job, so I will not complain Ellis. too much. You keep saying Wenzel Harris. I, it's funny. I'm thinking Kam- uh, Kamala Wenzel Harris. Yeah, Kamala yeah. Wenzel Harris. Um, we'll try to try to pin this <laughs> eugenic story on her. Wow. Hey, hey now. <laughs> for the podcast. See you for, for the podcast. All right. All right. I can do this. Um, you guys ready? Mm-hmm. Get my recorder started. All right. So uh, Will's last. Jesse's first. Paul's second. Evan's third, I think. No, no, no. Mice's third, then Evan. That's That makes sense. Yeah, right? but, so Jesse, Paul, uh, Misa, Evan, Will. Yeah? Yeah. Good. Yeah. Um, pretty sure Mar- Marissa is not joining us. I'm just going to scroll down. She said she would give me the high sign or whatever. Actually, that's what I wanted her to say because I, I want to know what the high sign is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, you ever heard this in a movie? They say, or in a book, they say, give me the high sign. I'll give you the high sign. I'm like, does that mean like they raise their hand and wave? <laughs> I, I, I saw the sign. It opened up my eyes. I saw the sign. No, that's 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 a Nazi song. Um, you know, are Ace of Base Nazis? Um, what? <laughs> you didn't know that? What? What? I what? Saw the swastika. It opened up my eyes. I saw the swastika. It's. The, it, the argument has been made. I'm not sure it's the greatest argument, but it's interesting. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's not the yellow sign either. I was hoping it was the yellow sign. No, no, that, that no. We have to repair your reputation if you go that. <laughs> there you go, Paul. That's a good one. I'm liking that one. All right, here we go.